what is a bloom board anyway? I'll ask speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 5th. It's show number two of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Nolan Arenado, Aaron Nola, Brad Hand, and other National Leaguers. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Eddie Rosario, Nelson Cruz, Liam Hendrick, Kirby Yates, and more. In our new segment, the HQ Spotlight, we'll talk with some of the many expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, starting this week with speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield. We'll discuss draft observations, his speculator columns about starters' pitch mixes, about batters with upside, and those Bloomboard lists, whatever the heck they are. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The Minor League Minute is back. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon will be looking at St. Louis outfielder Dylan Carlson. And in the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky puts some air miles under Philadelphia right-hander Mike Adams. It's another big Friday news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's our first news and notes edition of 2021. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday News and Notes edition, our Market Watch Player News reports, Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, first show of the season. Uh, I hope you're as excited as I am. Oh, I am very excited. Always good to be here and good to be able to talk baseball. That's the best part of it, isn't it? Uh, the opportunity to see a regular season coming in at a regular time, although that's certainly not a done deal, but uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. There's been a lot of news in the offseason, Nick. Uh, the biggest news in the National League, I think, so far, we could all agree. Colorado Rockies traded uh, all-star third baseman Nolan Arenado to St. Louis. They got back pitcher Austin Gomber, maybe some prospects. And remarkably, uh, Colorado reportedly had to throw in $50 million bucks or something like that to offset Arenado's salary. Uh, that hasn't been confirmed, but there was some money that changed hands. It seems weird in a, in a trade that you have to pay the other guy to take the star off your hands. I, I, of course, I immediately think, Nick, of a, of a fantasy trade where if you were trading Nolan Arenado for Aaron Gomber, you wouldn't expect to pay the guy to take him off your hands, but that's baseball. Right. <laughs> So Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today, Nick. Uh, so let's start with the effect on the Cardinals. They get Nolan Arenado. Uh, what, where do the Budweiser cans fall in St. Louis? Well, with Colton Wong leaving for Milwaukee, uh, Tommy Edmund will probably move full-time to become the everyday second baseman for St. Louis. Uh, he took a step back from 2019 during the abbreviated 2020 season, XBA of 246, uh, uh, power index of 66, those numbers suggest that Edmund is going to be a more interest to managers in deeper leagues. Uh, playing time loser will end up being Matt Carpenter, who's blocked by Arenado at third base and by Paul Goldschmidt at first. 
Yeah, that Edmund Power Index of 66 of uh, people who are maybe just getting back into the swing of baseball, the Power Index, all the index figures at BaseballHQ.com are based on a 100 normal. So a uh, power index of 66 indicates sort of two-thirds of normal, which is one-third lower than you really would expect to have from a major league player. So Tommy Edmond, I mean, he does bring some things to the table, decent uh, batting average despite that XBA, but uh, yeah, not not a uh, not a big gain at uh, second base, for, uh, especially when you compare it to Colton Wong. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story from the Colorado angle because Jock's the uh, National League West correspondent. What happens in Colorado with Arenado gone? Well, Jock says there's no definitive word from Colorado as to Arenado's immediate replacement at third base, but third base is second baseman Ryan McMahon's original career position. Uh, he's been Arenado's primary backup for several years. Uh, we're projecting what looks like a platoon with Chris Owings uh, and McMahon on the good side of that platoon. McMahon had a decent year in 2019, batted 250 with 24 homers, 83 RBIs, and 539 plate appearances and five stolen bases. And we should expect, I think, about that many plate appearances this season. Uh, McMahon's power looks capped unless he gets more balls into the air, uh, just a 28% fly ball rate, 50% grounders. Uh, Owings is a career 240 hitter uh, with not much power but decent speed, about 10 home runs and 21 stolen bases uh, for 650 plate appearances. Uh, with the man leaving second base, the way is clear for once elite offensive prospect Brendan Rodgers. But Rodgers has had injury issues. Colorado's would take a longer look perhaps at Garrett Hampson, who has elite speed, uh, 21 stolen bases and 511 combined plate appearances in 2019-2020. Uh, one of the prospects in the deal, Elurus Montero, is still just 22. And he has a legit future as an everyday uh, major league corner infielder. He could get 2021 20, third base reps by the season's end. And before entering, uh, but entering 2019 as one of St. Louis's top prospects, uh, he broke a hammock and didn't recover. So posted just a 552 OPS over 20, 224 at bats at double A. Uh, the Rockies were giving plenty of time, I think, in the high minors to regroup at this point. And the $50 million question, I guess, Nick, is how does leaving Coors Field for St. Louis affect Arenado as a fantasy prospect? Well, Phil Hertz says, though Arenado has delivered at least $31 in value every season from 2015 through 2019, the move from Coors to Bush books a big dent in his projection. Uh, Park Factor backs that up with Arenado's career slugging percentage in St. Louis about 140 points lower than in Colorado. Uh, add to that, he's coming off a shoulder injury last year, a declining walk rate. Uh, Phil's analysis says that Arnado may no longer be an upper echelon fantasy third baseman. Some pretty good skills otherwise, though, Nick. Uh, 90% contact rate, pretty close to that. Uh, power consistently above average for the last five seasons. That $30 value that uh, Phil mentioned, and that's without any stolen bases to speak of. Uh, he had a bad year in the short season last year because of that injury. Uh, in your opinion, should we be writing off Nolan Arenado as quickly as some people are? Well, you know, I think in a draft, I would talk up uh, the problems of his leaving Colorado and the fact that his, uh, his home runs are going to go uh, through the floor and uh, all of those things, but I'm not writing off Nolan Arenado. Um, we've seen this happen before with, with guys leaving Colorado and we thought they were going to, going to tank. Uh, the, the most recent example is DJ LeMahieu, right. who certainly has not tanked since he left Colorado. Uh, and, and so I think uh, I, I would certainly not write off Nolan Arenado at this point. I'd try to get him for 
less fewer dollars that I was going to spend while he was in Colorado. But uh, still, he's a, he's a quality third baseman. He's going to be in there every single day. Uh, and my guess is he will adjust. Yeah, I guess the question is, what what is the right value? I guess is the if you're in an auction, particularly because uh, you have to make dollar choices and early in the draft. If it gets up towards that thirty dollar mark, I don't know if I'm going to be as enthusiastic as I might have been in years past, just because of the track record, the park change, you know, all of these kind of things. And uh, I know I've read somewhere, and I don't know exactly where, but usually when guys change parks, it's not a good year to be gambling on them. You know what I mean? Right. I know what you mean. And I think, you know, I think you're right. If the, if the price approaches $30, I'm probably going to bow out at that point. Uh, I might be in at 25 Right. Uh, it's that kind of the, the, the level I think we're talking about here. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, his name is big enough that I suspect that in most auction leagues, he's not going to go for $25. I'd certainly be in at that level. I think the more interesting question is for the millions of people who play in snake style drafts and you get to that point where, you know, you could take him, but then you look around at all the other guys in the neighborhood and you think to yourself, gosh, I don't know. You know, the, the risk seems higher because of all these changes. Right. Yeah. I think so too. I, you know, I, uh, I think if I had him in a keeper league, I wouldn't be uh, uh, be jumping to trade him uh, unless I got an awfully good deal for him. But I, you know, I think there's there's certainly some risk involved with the move uh, out of Colorado in this case. Moving along, a couple of big closers changed hands, uh, moved to new teams in the offseason. in the American League. Of course, uh, Liam Hendricks signed on, uh, moving from uh, Oakland to Chicago. In the National League, the Nationals have signed Brad Hand, late of Cleveland. Uh, how does he fit in in Washington? Well, Hand will be handed the National closing job on day one. He's coming off a season that on the surface was excellent. There are however, some warning signs in his resume, particularly his recent resume. While his 2020 ERA was the best of his career, uh, XERA was a pedestrian 3.53, and that's his worst since 2015 when he was a part-time starter for Miami. In addition, his velocity was down 1.3 miles an hour. Uh, his uh, swinging strike rate of 10.7% was by far his worst. since again that 2015 season. His arrival in Washington strongly suggests that Sean Doolittle will not return to the Nationals. It also pushes Daniel Hudson back to a setup role. Uh, the Washington reliever who arguably exhibited the best skills in 2020 was Tanner Rainey, who had a 2.74 XERA and a 43% strikeout rate. So if Hand were to stumble, Rainey is probably the pitcher you would want to roster. I like this advice from Phil Hertz of Baseball HQ in the Playing Time Today coverage. I think that there's a, a, a decent chance that Brad Hand's on the wrong side of the age curve and on the wrong side of the career performance curve. And I agree that Rainey's the guy that I think you want to look at. He's probably going to be available well down the draft or cheap in the end game of an auction. I think Tanner Rainey would be an excellent handcuff for Brad Hand. And even if you don't want to roster Brad Hand, Rainey might be the kind of guy you want to grab and just stash away, depending on your league rules. Yeah, I think he'd be a great stash. Uh, I think there are real questions about Brad Hand. The Nationals certainly want to compete, and they're probably not going to give him a gigantic leash uh, if, if he begins stumbling early. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, 
Matt Cedarholm at BaseballHQ.com writes a column called The Market Pulse, and he's uh, right now going through position-by-position reviews of all the teams in Major League Baseball. This is a real help for doing your roster planning and your your draft planning because you can get an idea of where the strengths are in the positions, where the weaknesses are, that kind of thing. And one of the names that popped off uh, when I looked at uh, Matt's coverage of uh, first base, second base, shortstop, that kind of thing, was Jake Cronenworth of San Diego. It's uh, what he calls a curious case. Uh, it is. Consider, if you will, the, the case of Jake Cronenworth, first base, second base, shortstop San Diego, being taken in the 11th round on the average, ahead of guys like Didi Gregorius and Paul DeJong, who have better projections and a starting job. So what is that based on? It's based on five glorious weeks in 2020 when he played out of his mind only to fall back to earth and to fall really hard once pitchers started planning against him. Minor league track record says he has a decent hit tool, not much power, moderate speed. So we're not going to let a few weeks in the weirdest season in Major League Baseball history override what we've seen in a thousand plus plate appearances at double A and triple A. He's a guy you take in the end game and hope to get 10th round value out of, but not a guy you take in the heart of your draft. I think that's really well said by Matt Cedarholm at Baseball HQ. This is a guy you don't take in the 10th round expecting 10th round value. You should never take 10th round guys expecting 10th round. You should try to be looking for 10th round value with 5th round upside. And, uh, yeah, this Jake Cronenworth, first of all, as Matt implies, doesn't really have a job in San Diego. There's all kinds of people ahead of him in the roster lineup in a powerful San Diego lineup. I don't understand how anybody's taking um, Jake Cronenworth in the 11th round. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I have no idea why somebody would, would do that. Another player that uh, Matt Cedarholm mentioned uh, in looking at catchers and DHs was Dalton Varsho of Arizona. He really likes Dalton Varsho. Yeah, you know, I, I think Dar- Dalton Varsho, a, a catcher, outfielder for Arizona, been a favorite of uh, of us really since we since we saw him play in first pitch Arizona a few years back, and he has the potential to be a top five catcher for years to come. Only guy on the list with the 2020 potential, uh, and that's a catcher 2020 potential, except perhaps Shoji Ojitani, he's a DH, uh, could be a 300 hitter to boot. How would how would a line of 30, 300, 20, 70, 70, 20 look to you out of the catcher position? I would think that'd be pretty darn good. Uh, that's why he's going as early as the eighth round. Fantasy upside is almost as high as any catching prospect. Uh, as with all rookies, and in this case, a pre-COVID rookie, uh, we need to temper expectations. But at current ADP, there's still room for profit. Uh, you go too high, and that will evaporate. And having said all of that, uh, we'll take him at his current ADP uh, if we still needed a number one catcher and we thought he was the best guy on the board. Hey, listen, Nick, if he hit 300 with 20 homers, 20 bags, and 70-70 in the counting stats, I think he's better than an eighth-round pick, especially a catcher. I'd be tempted to look even higher. Of course, the question is, is he actually worth that? Is that likely to happen? Uh, it sounds like that that stat line would be like the pinnacle of the, the, the highest possible expectation coming to pass. Yeah, I think it would be too, but, but you know, even then, uh, guys producing those kind of uh, – can you imagine a 2020 hitter at catcher? I mean, that's just, uh, you know, a catcher, we, we, what do we do? We draft what we can get. Uh, and so uh, I, I really like Dalton Varsho. I have him in two keeper leagues that picked him up on based on, based on baseball HQ's, uh, HQ's uh, vision of him a, a year or two ago. And, and so, uh, yeah, I love the guy. I'm not getting rid of him. 
for throwing the, some water on, on this whole deal, the Baseball HQ has a projection for Dalton Varsho of 400 at-bats, maybe 14 homers, 14 bags, uh, $13 of value, which is still good, but it's not that good, you know, and uh, runs right. and RBIs, you know, 76 runs down the bottom of the order, 49 RBIs because he's down the bottom of the order. So um, he, he could be an interesting guy. And he this is the kind of guy I would really be happy to gamble on because uh, at second catcher or even late first catcher, you don't really expect that much anyway. Right, right. I mean, you know, I'm looking at a second catcher or so some guy who simply won't kill my batting average. So, uh, I, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of value to be found in Dalton Varsha. Stephen Nickrand, one of our favorite columnists at BaseballHQ.com, writes the Batter's Buyer's Guide and the Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide. And he had a column just the other day uh, called Young Targets. This is pitchers who are under age 30, I think maybe even under age 28, who we should be looking at not only for this year but uh, in the longer term. And one of the names on his list, and this is somebody whose name I've heard and read a lot in the fantasy wisdom world, Brandon Woodruff, a right-hander in Milwaukee. Brandon Woodruff has become really, as uh, Stephen says, really become a, a true starting pitcher, too, uh, behind his 3.05 ERA and 0.99 whip from 2020 was a 168 BPV. So certainly one of uh, looking at, at, at being in the kind of almost top tier pitchers in the National League. Uh, that aggregate manager of his skills was supported by a 13% swinging strike rate, a 34% ball rate, uh, doesn't allow a lot of hard contact. Uh, 86.7 EV and induces ground balls, 49% ground ball rate. No reason to sell high on Brandon Woodruff. Uh, I, I, I love him for this year. Yeah, Brandon Woodruff has sort of quietly snuck up and become one of the better pitchers, I think, for fantasy purposes in all of baseball and maybe not quite as well appreciated as he needs to be. But uh, I talked to Gene McCaffrey last week, uh, or earlier this week, actually, in uh, the first show of the season. And one of the things he really likes about any pitcher is a guy who combines a very high ground ball rate with an acceptably high uh, strikeout rate. And boy, that's Brandon Woodruff in a nutshell, that ground ball rate around 50% and, uh, and the dom rate of 11 strikeouts per nine innings. That's a really good combination because it means there's a lot of unproductive outs and and uh, nothing too much going in the air, so the risk of home runs, doubles, that kind of thing is mitigated. Brandon Woodruff is probably going to go higher than we'd like. We'd like him to be a sleeper and stay a sleeper, but I think the word is out on Brandon Woodruff, and certainly Stephen Nickran's not helping by advertising him in baseball right, HQ. Think, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield, I'll be talking with Ryan a little later on this show, uh, writes the Speculator column, and he had a, a column recently called Switching It Up, and he was discussing pitchers who benefited by changing their pitch mixes, uh, oftentimes de-emphasizing one pitch and emphasizing another pitch because it's a better pitch. And one of the pitchers he discussed was a guy we probably already thought of as a pretty darn good pitcher, and that's Aaron Nola in Philadelphia. Very definitely, but you know, Aaron Nola has never quite reached the, the heights that we might have hoped he would reach. Uh, I've been an Aaron Nola fan since he was at LSU, and uh, uh, you know, always were hoping for more from him. Uh, but what what uh, this is a great column I thought that Ryan wrote. What he did was look at uh, it, the the pitch mix changes from pitchers, and 2019 Aaron Nola threw his change up 18.6 percent of the time. That jumped 27.4 percent of the time in 2020. 
uh, and got a 77% ground ball rate out of that pitch. Uh, amazing. And a 70% swinging strike rate. He kind of dropped his knuckle curve uh, from 35% to 26% in 2020. Uh, that was only producing the, only produced a 39% ground ball rate, so a good reason to drop that pitch. A four-seam fastball dropped from 35% to 25% in 2020. And again, a pitch that produced only a 21% ground ball rate. And a pitch that, that he really started using more, a sinker. 10% 10 in 2019, 20% in 2020. Has trouble getting the ball over the plate because only gets a 1.3% swinging strike rate. But when guys swing at that pitch and connect, 53% ground ball rate. The knock has always been on Nola the past few seasons, a mediocre strikeout rate. That changed in 2020 with a career-high 33% strikeout rate and plenty of support for a 14.1% swinging strike rate. Driving those gains was a change-up that he threw more than any other pitch. And it was one of two pitches, minimum 150 pitches, with a 75% ground ball rate and a 17% swinging strike rate from last season. Uh, his arsenal is dynamic. He throws four pitches, four pitches over 20% of the time. Three of them had above average whiff rates uh, and an elite any pitch floor firmly in place. I think an ideal target as a rotation anchor this year. I actually thought that Aaron Nola might be a, an elite level pitcher coming into this year at the higher end of the pitchers who are not Jacob deGrom, Garrett Cole, over the last couple of years, he's been sort of interesting but frustrating. He had a $34 season in 2018, and we thought, boy, oh boy, look at this guy. And then he really fell back to $13 in 2019. And uh, last year, you know, you don't really want to count it. But I think what Ryan Bloomfield points to, and that you have just uh, pointed to as well, is I think the real advantage he has here is most pitchers, even though they have four pitches, throw two of them most of the time. And and batters know that. But now you look at Aaron Nolan, and as you suggest, he's throwing all four of his pitchers about a quarter of the time, which means if you're standing in that batter's box, you really are guessing. You really have to be guessing. You can't assume that, oh, you know, the chips are down. He's, gonna, he's always going to go to this pitch or that pitch because he's got all four of them going. And all four of them going pretty successfully, especially when it comes to, as we talked about a moment ago with Brandon Woodruff, you've got that combination of strikeouts, swinging strikes, and ground balls. And boy, oh boy, when you combine those two things, unproductive outs, uh, I think Aaron Nola is going to get a bump up on my draft list. Uh, I don't know about yours, but I think he's well worth it, given the change that Ryan has pointed to. Yeah, very definitely. As you said, you know, he's got, he has four pitches. The one that, that uh, really was, was the most impressive almost last year was the, the change-up. So if I'm a batter, I notice that. I read Brian's column. I'm going to sit there waiting for the change-up, and he's going to throw a fastball by me. Exactly. He's throwing, he throws pitches about 25% of the time. That's, that's great. It is great. Uh, as I said, I'm really looking forward to maybe getting Aaron Nola on a roster this year. And finally, uh, Brad Coleman of Baseball HQ writes the keepers column. This is uh, if you're planning for keeper or dynasty play and you're trying to build yourself a foundation for a long run as a successful fantasy team. He's looking at 2021 building blocks, Brad Coleman's keepers columns are. And in his analysis of second baseman, Brad included the Dodgers' Gavin Lux as what he calls a cornerstone. It's the highest ranking, but Brad's recommendation is a little bit tempered. What's the attraction here and what's the concern? Well, you know, we thought last year before the start of the season that that, uh, that Gavin Lux was a presumptive starter, rookie of the year candidate. 
uh, prior to the delayed start of the season. Uh, and mysteriously, the Dodgers held him out of the major leagues early on for what they called performance reasons. And I think everyone thought, well, they're just trying to manipulate the service time here and, and, and that sort of thing. But when Lux finally did get to the majors, he provided ample evidence to support the assertion. He struggled with a miserable 175 batting average, uh, 246 uh, on base average, 349 slugging, uh, 19-game line after he was finally called up in late August. And despite that awful year, he's still the same guy who posted a combined 345, 419, 595 line across the top three minor league levels in 2018-2019 and as the inside track on a starting role for 2021. Uh, pressure's on to show that last year was an anomaly. But I think at this point, we'll give him, uh, Brad says, to give him the benefit of the doubt based on the unprecedented atmosphere of 2020. Uh, maybe not the rock solid cornerstone we thought he once would be, but uh, uh, if I've got Gavin Lux in a keeper league, I'm hanging on to him at this point to see what he can do. And we all know about the Alex Rodriguez path to stardom. It sometimes takes a guy, guys a while to get launched. It does indeed. And even uh, after two years uh, up and down in the major leagues, Gavin Lux is only 23 years old. And we talk about this all the time here at Baseball HQ Radio and as fans. And so I think sometimes we all lose track of the, of the fact Major League Baseball is really hard. It's just a really difficult thing to do, especially, you know, you're always looking for those guys who jump a level, move up a level, and keep hitting, and or even improve hitting in the cases of a few uh, exceptional hitters. But ordinarily, it's, uh, you know, you start succeeding at AA, they move you up to AAA, and, and you back off a little bit because the competition is tougher, and they say... That you know, for every jump up, there's a the, there's this adjustment period. But the biggest adjustment period by far is when you go from the high minors to Major League Baseball. It's a it's a whole different game at that level. The pitchers are better, they're smarter. You have some advantages with the lighting and so forth. But Major League Baseball is hard, and sometimes it takes even really talented guys a little while to get their feet underneath them. And and perhaps Gavin Lux is in that position. Now, having said that. Would you make him a cornerstone of a of a fantasy team that you were looking at for you know a long run in a dynasty or keeper format? Uh, there are, there are other guys I might take ahead of Gavin Lux if I were looking for my real cornerstone, but you know there aren't uh, there aren't a lot of good uh, uh, really uh, hot potential second basemen out there. There's some guys at shortstop who might change positions, but at this point, if I had to draft a second baseman, I think I'd take Lux if I were drafting. On a, on a guys who had not had you know had had not had a full major league season behind them. Yeah, I think that's about the way you have to look at it. To certainly somebody to consider. I think you have to temper your expectations. But I'm really looking forward to see what he can do this year. I think it may be something of a make or break year because I'm sure the Dodgers are thinking and fantasy uh, uh, fantasy managers will be thinking. You know what? Two years Mulligan. Okay, fair enough time to get rolling here and and oddly enough i think if this year he struggles again next year he might be a real bargain yeah i think you're right absolutely all right nick thanks very much for joining us national league news analysis uh, we'll be talking to you throughout the season and i'm really looking forward to it all right thanks a lot patrick Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ General Manager Ray Murphy. Ray Murphy, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been quite a while and it's great to have you back. Oh, nice to get 
talking about some actual transactions. Uh, you know, not only is the off season, you know, a tough time with no podcast, but there was no news to even not talk about for a long time there. Finally, it seems like we're getting some things going on here. Well, meanwhile, you guys uh, at BaseballHQ.com have been putting together the site with the expectation that it's going to be a full 162. It's going to start on time, and notwithstanding labor negotiations and stuff. So uh, I, know, I know you must have been keeping really busy in the offseason. Oh, for sure. There's a, It's funny, there's a lot to do uh, to recover from uh, the, the short 2020 season you know we put as i found out in november december we put a lot of band-aids on the site to make it work for 60 games and we had to rip off all of those band-aids and now we're doing things like you know adding capability for uh you know different games played by position qualifications because obviously the 20 game standard that we had hard-coded all over the site really doesn't work out of a 60 game season so uh you know there's still some uh, ripples and you know interesting things we discover virtually every week but uh you know these are all good problems to have uh you know it seems like uh you know whether or not we get the full 162 i think the the floor or the downside on that 162 number is still a still a pretty good number this year so hopefully uh hopefully we get rolling sometime near where we're supposed to and things roll pretty smoothly all year i'm looking forward to it a big part of your role at Baseball HQ, Ray, is to be the manager of the uh, projections. And uh, anytime I talk to somebody who's got a, a projections angle on things, I'm very curious how you decided to manage the 60-game season insofar as uh, building your baseline projections. I, the ordinary way of doing it is you, you take a three-year weighted average with the most recent year being the most heavily weighted but that's a little tougher to do in a 60-game 2020 because it doesn't really reflect a large enough sample, perhaps, to be representative. So how did you guys decide to manage the 60 games that we had last year, if at all? It, it, you hit on the on the uh, key phrase at the end there, the you know, the if at all. For, uh, for readers of the Baseball Forecaster, and if you haven't read our purchased our annual publication uh, that we spent the fall writing, uh, I definitely recommend diving in. This was, this question was sort of the central, um, the central one that Ron Chandler tried to address in his introduction that he writes every year in the forecaster. And really he got into what you're hinting at at the end there, which is, you know, there are so many variables from the 60 games to the, misaligned divisions to uh, the COVID protocols, to the way the schedule got screwed up for teams like the Cardinals and the Marlins, to the expanded roster, to the universal DH, et cetera. And, and it really gets you to the point where Ron Chandler, you know, basically looked at this list of challenges, all the unique aspects of the 2020 season uh, and sort of suggested, well, we can't possibly account for all of these. Maybe we shouldn't even try. Maybe the things we most know about these players are what they did in their last full full seasons, you know, for instance, you know, if you're talking about a three-year average, maybe we just go back to 2017 to 19. That's a little bit of an extreme. We didn't actually do that in the forecaster. We took some uh, some other steps. For instance, we ran a uh, a new line in the forecaster that showed their second half of 2019 plus all of 2020 to try to get sort of the last full season scan to get, get get a sort of a larger sample of player um, player performance where we could, you know, isolate what the trend is over a decent sample size. But I'm actually writing a, a promo for the site now that sort of suggests that, you know, maybe, you know, we always fight recency bias every off season. Everyone is too hung up on what happened in the last season. That's sort of a, an annual crusade on our part. 
Um, and even more so this year, I'm seeing in early drafts that you know there's too much emphasis being placed on what people did in the 60-game season. And I am moving quickly toward a position of what I thought about these players in many cases a year ago at this time is probably still what I should think about them now. Yeah, I understand yeah, that, I understand uh, that uh, approach. It makes approach. sense to it me. Sense to me. I, I am I looking at uh, putting at together, the, putting as together, as you said, the last 100 games of 2019 plus 60 last year to create a simulacrum of a season. But it's really not because, as you, as Ron and you both uh, acknowledge, the 60-game season was not just 60 games insofar as making it harder to, to place with all of those other variables. It, it is really hard to say, so maybe the best way is to just look a little farther back and de-emphasize what happened last year. Although, you know, for all of us as we look at it, we're going to see certain breakouts, certain fall-offs from players, and you can't discount those either if a player all of a sudden, like, how are you dealing with Randy Rosarena, for instance? You know, he certainly 100%. looked real good in the playoffs. Yeah, there are some cases where the, you know, the, that 2020 sample is enough to give us some confirmation. I think about um, you, Darvish is one who was like the second half of 2019, where he really sort of out of the blue so found his control to a level he basically never had in his career, and he carried that over for all of 2020. So to your point, for that last 162 game sample, you know, now we've got some really good confirmation data on Darvish. So you can't really throw out. You know, there are places where the 2020 data is helpful, but then you get into the Arasarenas or the the other people who random, you know, seemingly randomly completely changed their profile in the 2020 short season, and you sit here saying, "I'd like to see you do that for more than 10 or 12 starts." Especially in the case of who was I looking at earlier this week? I Luis Castillo on the Reds, you know, who had a good 2019, but had an even better 2020 from a skills perspective. But you dig into his game log, and in 12 starts. I think six of them were against the Pirates, Tigers, and Royals. It's like, yeah, I'm sure you are going to do pretty well. Yeah, it's easy to look good, uh, you know, like a prize fighter taking on uh, some Girl Scout troop or something like that. As, <laughs> as the guy in the local newspaper likes to say here, the uh, you know, facing a bunch of tomato cans. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So uh, you, we do have the projections out. They'll be updated with news as often. Uh, do you still do it every day at this early stage of the season? Yeah, it's just about every day now. Uh, it'll be uh, for sure next week after the Super Bowl. We'll turn it on for everyday updates from now through the end of the regular season, whenever that happens to be. Right, yeah, and that, that they're people should understand when you guys do the projections, you establish a baseline, but the baseline is a set of ratios that are based on playing time. And a critical part of what goes on in baseball HQ's approach to this is amending playing time projections as the news warrants. And you have a, uh, a bunch of reporters basically who are responsible for monitoring each team in detail to say, uh, based on the news that I've just read in the Washington Post or wherever they get their information from, looks like we need to cut Max Scherzer down a couple of starts because he's got a sore foot or whatever. And those those adjustments are constantly being made, which is a big advantage in a projection system rather than just saying, well, this is what we said on April 1st. Let's just live with it because that's not how it works. That's exactly right. I, you know, we talk about the projections like they're mine personally, and most of the work I do is just about 
it's not done, but I've been, I'm in maintenance mode at this time of year. Now, most of my work is coming out of the forecaster process and in December and January where I'm uploading to the site, all of those baseline projections you were just talking about. And after they're uploaded, I don't generally need to touch them that much. I'll touch them if a player changes teams for sure, or if there's a new player who needs a baseline, like, uh, you know, but there aren't that many of those anymore. You know, I, I did one last night for Matt Moore coming back from Japan to the Phillies, you know, those kinds of cases. But to your point, most of the adjustments to the projections from this point forward are those playing time analysts making adjustments to the playing time component of the projection which just acts as a multiplier on all of those ratios. So there's a lot of work to be done in that area between now and opening day and beyond as we start to suss out position battles and, you know, still with player movement and free agency and trades, there are open positions. There are any number of teams who I don't have any idea who the DH is going to be. We still don't know for sure whether the NL is going to have a DH, you know, but all of those changes can be handled at the team level, at the playing time assignment level. Uh, There's not a lot of heavy surgery I'm doing on those baseline projections at this point. Well, something else that's going on at Baseball HQ, of course, is that we're ramping up the uh, the news feed. So we have a lot of news analysis that was going on sort of weekly or bi-weekly during the real doldrums of the offseason. But as we're starting to get more news, we're starting to get more analysis. Uh, let's start. We'll run through a few of the teams that made some interesting moves in the offseason that we should discuss. Starting in Cleveland, they signed uh, Eddie Rosario to a one-year deal uh, this was a bit of a surprise that it took a as long as it did for Eddie Rosario to sign and b that he got what looks like a relatively small deal compared to what he might have got even two years ago. So uh, obviously he fits in with uh, the Twins in the outfield. But uh, what's the rest of the fallout? Uh, Tom Kephart covered this for Playing Time today. Yeah, the Playing Time today situation for the Indians is. You know, there are still some pieces to be fit together there. Like you said, Rosario fits really, really well because they had a full or over full even infield and seemingly no outfield. And Rosario was an obvious addition to plug that. So he's going to step into into left field every day, which is an easy fit. But that also helps fill in some of the other dominoes or gaps in that lineup uh you know they've obviously had a very active offseason even before the rosario signing although most of those were from a subtraction rather than addition perspective with the the sending out carrasco and lindor to the mets but you know they brought back ahmed rosario and andre jimenez from the mets in that deal and it wasn't totally clear how they were going to fit into the lineup and then they further complicated that by re-signing cesar hernandez to play second base so Process of elimination, Hernandez is the second baseman. Jose Ramirez is clearly still the third baseman. Of the two guys acquired from the Mets, Jimenez is the better defender, so he's probably the shortstop. And that leaves Ahmed Rosario floating around, and it's in, it seems to be becoming increasingly likely that he's actually going to move out to center field because they added Rosario in left field, but they don't really have a center fielder. They had Oscar Mercado. Uh, who struggled in the short season last year, and they have a bunch of pieces floating around for right field, but it seems like there's ample opportunity for Rosario or maybe Rosario and Mercado, and Mercado excuse me, to, to man center and right. But r- dropping Eddie Rosario in left field does start to clarify some of those other dominoes. 
Uh, speaking of Eddie Rosario, he leaves the Twins. They managed to get Nelson Cruz back to DH again this year on a one-year deal. But they also signed Alex Colome, formerly of the White Sox. He had a terrific year in, in the short season. Uh, decimals were under one. I think he picked up 12 saves or something like that in the short run. That was a pretty good short season, and you have to really look at Alex Colome. But they had Taylor Rogers already. So what's the, uh, what's the analytical take on the save split as it goes on in Minnesota? Yeah, Colome really was, as you say, just absolutely terrific in... 21 at least from in 20 at least from a um from a skills from a uh outward numbers perspective uh you know he had an era under one a whip under one he saved you know 12 games and out of out of 60 but you know his skills were very very average or even below average so it was as much of a smoke and mirrors operation as you're ever ever likely to see he had nearly a three and a half run difference between his era and his expected era which is you know, just otherworldly in terms of uh, good fortune. So, as you say, the real question is whether he's going to close for the Twins. Rogers, you know, was a little bumpier in 20 than he was in 19, but he still is, you know, a more skilled reliever from a underlying metrics perspective. And it could well be that Colome comes in to what was really sort of the Trevor May role. You remember May left for the Mets as well. But they also have Tyler Duffy, who's also a highly skilled right-handed reliever. And they brought in Hansel Robles, and they have Tyler Clippert around, who was pretty good last year too. So it's a and Sergio Romo. So it's a this is a pretty good, deep, versatile bullpen. And my hunch is, you know, Baldelli's been fairly creative. In the ninth inning, he's leaned on Rodgers the last couple of years, but not exclusively. So I, I think there's room here for Colome, for Rodgers, and maybe even Duffy to pull down a decent shares of the sha- of, of the saves picture here. Right, and I think the corollary of that is for anybody who's looking for a closer, if you're looking for a guy who's going to get all the saves on a team, Minnesota might not be the place to be looking. That's exactly right. I, you know, if you took, if you told me nobody in this bullpen gets tw- gets more than twenty saves, I have absolutely no trouble believing that. Staying in Minnesota, Ray, the Twins also signed Andrelton Simmons to play shortstop, which is a, a, a definitely a de- uh, defensive upgrade. But how does it play on the offensive side? Yeah, as you say, perhaps the the winners in that transaction are the Twins pitchers who get, uh, you know, instead of Polanco and Arias up the middle, they get Simmons at short and Polanco over at second base. So uh, good good news for the entire Twins pitching staff. Um, Offensively, you know, Simmons is, you know, pretty well-established commodity at this point. Uh, You you know, he's going to hit for a good average. He's got a super, uh, super contact rate, one of the better ones we've seen in, the majors over the last several years, that's sort of his core foundational skill. You know, it dipped down to 86% in the short season 2020, uh, but that's the lowest mark of his career. Uh, you know, he's traditionally been like a, a 90% contact hitter, which is almost unheard of in this day and age. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of power to come with it. There used to be some hints of speed, but he's had, um, you know, recurring angle problems in the last few years. So I think that probably is a dubious proposition. So he really becomes a, uh, you know, an average first offensive asset. And I can only assume he's going to hit in the bottom of this pretty good lineup, probably with him and Buxton at eight and nine at some point. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, 
runs and RBIs to look for here. He'll probably score some runs because the top of that lineup will drive him in at a decent clip when he gets on base. But uh, you know, unremarkable offensively. But but you know, the headline is still good news for the Twins pitchers. And Luis Arias is kind of on the uh, outside looking in, but he may have a role playing all over the field. That's right. Uh, you know, he's gonna. You know, it, it, it's Marwin Gonzalez is a free agent, and it seems like. He probably will not be back here. So Arias probably slides into that role. We've actually got him projected for playing time at all of second, third, short, the outfield, and DH in 10, 15% increments. So, you know, certainly a part time player, but somebody who will play, you know, 50, probably 50, 60% of the time. And, uh, you know, he's actually, from a hitting skills perspective, he's actually relatively similar to Simmons, you know, where contact is his sort of headline skill and you know another guy we don't see too many of these but now the twins have two in the same lineup who offers that you know magical 90 percent contact level uh you know not a whole lot of power or speed there in fact he did not either steal a base or hit a home run in 100 plus at bats in 2020 2020 but he'll put the ball he'll put the ball in play when he plays he'll probably bat seven eight or nine and you know he's got a career batting average at this point in the majors of 316 over 300 plus at bats so you know it's an empty 300 but we don't scoff at any 300s in this day and age right yeah that's exactly right uh, they also signed uh, on the pitching side jay happ moves over to the twins is he one of the pitchers who's going to benefit from the uh, enhanced infield defense yeah, you would certainly think so. Yeah, especially you know relative to some of the other guys in the rotation, uh, you know the returnees in guys like Maeda and Berrios. Uh, you know, Hap's game is much more let them put the ball in play, and you know he doesn't have a massive ground ball tilt, but he's got a little bit of a ground ball tilt, and he's getting less strikeouts than some of the other guys on the staff. So yes, he's going to benefit from. Uh, from Simmons at shortstop, from Polanco at second, and you know, without Rosario, maybe a little bit of better outfield defense too. You know, obviously, a lot of the Twins' outfield defense hinges on whether a superior defender Byron Buxton can stay in the lineup. But, but between Buxton and Kepler, and maybe, maybe not an opening day, but maybe at some point Alex Kirilov in left field or Jake. Cave or Cave or however we say that, uh, you know, that's an upgrade in left field defense. So the Twins defense could be pretty good. And between that and the improvement in both park factors moving for Hap moving from New York to Minnesota, a much better pitching environment, and also the benefit of moving from the AL East to the AL Central, it's a it's a relatively good landing spot for Hap, who's obviously older and has a mediocre and declining skill set, but you know, the environmentally, it's a pretty good spot for him. Before we leave the Twins, uh, we mentioned Nelson Cruz re-signed as everybody expected. So the question I think there is, why is he still going so low? Uh, do, is this the year everybody seems to expect that he's finally going to fall off? Despite all evidence to the contrary, that I mean, he's going to last forever. Not a lot of evidence of it, right? It has to happen sooner or later. But uh, you know, at forty-one, he is. Um, you know, th- th- there there are some hints of the skill um, skill slippage, but you know, it's hard to. You know, this is one of those cases where it's hard to say. Yeah, sixty game season. I don't know. It's not a full evaluation, but you know, there are some warning signs in the skill set. The other thing I think plays into it is, at least in my early drafting is you know it's particularly painful to roster the full-time dh 
And I, I've always discounted Cruz because of that. Maybe I'm a little more sensitive to that than others. But if you look at where his ADP is versus where, um, where it would be for somebody who you could put even at first base or in the outfield, I think that's a that's a decent chunk of why this production comes at a discount, even in addition to the uh, the age and the decline risk. Let's move along to the Toronto Blue Jays. They've been one of the busiest teams in all of the free agency, maybe the busiest insofar as impact players, maybe not on volume alone. But let's start with uh, George Springer and Marcus Semien, two pretty good names, two pretty well-known players moving into what is shaping up to be a very potent offense. A very potent offense and a place where it's awfully hard to diagnose how all the pieces fit together. So I'm hoping your local knowledge can... Uh, to get shed some light from EPD because I'm not totally clear how this all works out. So Springer arriving, first of all, creates a pretty crowded outfield. You know, they already had Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel, and Randall Grichuk all returning, uh, and none of whom obviously deserved to lose a job. You know, Teoscar has obviously been a breakout, uh, had a breakout 2020, and, you know, is going to be entrenched in the lineup because of that. Um, Guriel and Grichik, I think are a little more vulnerable, but I don't think are, you know, I think they're both better than fourth or fifth outfielder types, but first base is clock. You know, you can't move those guys to first base because Rowdy Telez had an excellent 2020 and needs at least a look there. And that's even assuming that Vlad Guerrero can, you know, with his new felt figure can move back to third base, which seems to be a wide assumption, but I'm not hundred percent sure that's going to be true. And then you have Boba Shedd at short and Semyon slotting in at second base. As you said, a very, very potent lineup, one through eight. But it's not clear on any given day who the odd person out is or how the pieces fit together. Well, yeah. And then if if you assume that Semyon's going to start at second, what do you do with Kevin Biggio, who played a lot of center field last year and a lot of infield? And, and with the glut of outfielders, now all of a sudden you have not a place for Kevin Biggio, who's actually a really good the offensive player, a really good top of the order guy who'll take his uh, share of walks despite the strikeouts. Yeah, I, I'm, I think there's more moves to be made here, frankly. I think it's the only way they can, they can get clear of, of this muddle that they've created for themselves. And to me, um, the, the likelihood might be that they move Bichette from short to third to cut down on the amount of, uh, of wear and tear on his knees, especially on the artificial surface in Toronto. So I think that's a possibility. Uh, I think they'd like to put uh, Vlad over there, but again, no matter what they do here, there's just too many pegs and not enough holes for all of them. And they want to get them all in the lineup, but you can't have a, you know, 13 man <laughs> batting order. <laughs> they don't allow that. And one thing that we can say universally about all of these people is none of them can catch, which is the only place that there is to add an additional bat here. Right. Um, and, and yeah, it's interesting because um, I should point out that even though, you know, I mentioned in my first speech there that, you know, there's the possibility of moving Vlad back to third, that we're actually not projecting that right now. And, um, you know, Chris Olson, who handles the playing time here still has, Vlad as primarily the first baseman with some DH and Biggio actually at third right now as his primary position, which leaves the outlaw, the, um, the, the guys frozen out to basically be some combination of Grichuk and Telez, uh, in the in sort of in the first base DH spot, wherever Vlad isn't, but that's to your point, uh, you know, very much still, speculation slash a work in progress. One thing I always like to say at this time of year about 
these kind of situations is they don't have a game tomorrow, so they don't actually need to solve the problem today. We're going to sort of have to sit back and wait a little bit, and as you say, see if there's a uh, see if there's another another um, piece to the puzzle to to uh, clarify things there. Yeah, and don't be surprised. Uh, does your projection for playing time have uh, Bichette as the primary shortstop? Ninety percent of the playing time at shortstop. Don't be surprised if Semyon ends up taking uh, 80% of that 90%. He's a much better shortstop than Bichette is. Bichette has, you know, decent speed and a decent glove, but he made a lot of sort of lack of focus type errors. And one thing we remember from Semyon's last couple of years is that he really improved defensively. Like he made it a a point in yep. his career that he was going to do that. And he went from being a fairly bumbling sort of guy himself up to being gold glove caliber uh, last year in particular, and but also in 2019. I think there's an excellent chance that uh, after the first few errors that uh, Bichette makes that they find some other occupation for him. But again, <laughs> how that all works out <laughs> is anybody's guess. And by the way, if Telez happens to get traded... Don't be sleeping on Rowdy Telez because he made some huge improvements in his approach at the plate last year that have gone largely unremarked upon. But if he maintains them, he could be a sleeper for 2021. He's uh, he's turned into a really really solid good hitter in the last uh, you know season and a third or so that uh, that and that deserves looking at. Before we leave the Jays, they also signed Kirby Yates. I uh, presume we're anticipating that he slots directly in in uh, Ken Giles' spot, going to close out games uh, at the end of a pretty decent bullpen. Yeah, it is a pretty decent bullpen, even with, uh, as you said, Giles out for the year and Anthony Basp, who you know masqueraded as the closer for parts of the short season, has moved on to Miami. But they're still so Yates does slot into the ninth pretty clearly. It would seem. I think there are probably still some health questions to be answered there that we can't see until he gets into camp and we see if he's even on a regular throwing program in the first week or two of this of the spring whenever that starts or if you know he's being held back a little bit obviously it doesn't take a closer the full five or six weeks of spring training to get ready to throw one inning at a time. So just if Yates starts out slowly, that's not an immediate cause for concern, but I'm, I'll be, I'll be curious to see at what point he is when he shows up, but behind him, you know, Jordan Romano is there and he was very, very good in primarily a setup role in the short season. Uh, Raphael Dolis is back and he will, he also was a capable part of that bullpen last year. So they are, they do have some good options and I, I you know, they also have, a raft of options for the rotation slash, you know, it'd be very interesting to see what they do with guys like Robbie Ray, Taiwan Walker, who's still, I guess, I guess Walker's still a free agent, but Robbie Ray in particular, I'm curious to see whether he is in the rotation or if he is in some sort of hybrid tandem opener, middle relief, multiple inning type thing where they just have him air it out. I know we talked before about how they messed around with his mechanics when they got, when he got to Toronto and seemed to solve some of the problems he had in Arizona. So he's uh, he's somebody I'll be watching in the spring from a role perspective. And before, before we leave the Blue Jays, uh, any big park effects? Uh, Semyon seems to benefit from leaving the cavernous Oakland facility, but uh, George Springer moves from one good hitting park to another. That's how I read it when I first found out about the deal. Am I right about that? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the open questions that I have not fully applied to the Jays' projections yet is, what is their home park, right? I think we think it's not yeah. Toronto, at least at least to start the season. There's some talk that it's going to be down in Dunedin, which I have read is you know a, a park that's got some short gaps in the outfield. But in general, that league, the Florida State League, you know, does not see a lot of power, at least from double-A hitters. You know, there's obviously a lot of humidity and a lot of uh, a lot of thunderstorm activity and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I, I, there's a pending, at least potential, global park factor upgrade for all of these guys that I have not applied yet because I'm not sure what factor to use. Yeah, actually, I had forgot about that whole thing. I thought, well, it'll, it'll be Rogers Stadium or the Sky Dome, whatever they call it. But uh, obviously, that's far from certain, uh, given the uh, situation with vaccines and what have you. Uh, moving on to the Detroit Tigers, probably another also-ran season for them. Uh, they picked up a couple of free agents, Wilson Ramos and Robbie Grossman. Doesn't look like that much, but uh, is there some value to either of them from the move to Detroit where they're going to play a lot? I think there probably is these these veteran nibble around the edges move kind of reminded me a lot of what they did last year. Last year was CJ Crone and uh, Jonathan Scope, and and this year they've plugged in Grossman and Ramos. Uh, Ramos seems like a pretty clear upgrade behind the plate. They only had you know Grayson Griner, Jake Rogers on the depth chart, and you know Ramos had a you know was another one of these guys who's a veteran who had a pretty poor 2020 in the short season, but owns better skills than that and you know uh, you're always interested in a catcher who you know even if he doesn't provide anything else provides contact and a batting average that won't hurt you and until last year when he only hit 239 Ramos has been that guy he had hit you know before that he had been a pretty consistently career you know 270s plus hitter with you know 80 plus percent contact sometimes nosing up toward 84 or 85 percent and in you know, in today's catching pool, that's not that's nothing to sneeze at. He sort of he was way down the ADP charts before he had a job, before he signed into Detroit, as it wasn't clear whether he was going to end up in a backup role somewhere. But now that he has landed somewhere where he's going to be the lead guy, I think he's he's very draft worthy from a do no harm catcher perspective. And Goodrum's been you know it was sli- slides right into that outfield where they have a lot of candidates, not a lot who are you know really remarkable. Really, it looks like. Him and Jacoby Jones and Victor Reyes are going to be the the lead outfielders now. And Grossman you know, was quietly, you know, sneaky good the last couple of years in Oakland. Uh, you know, only a two forties batting average, but you know, showing some plus power, uh, especially in the short season last year. And a, a power speed blend in uh, just one hundred and sixty six at bats in Oakland last year. He stole eight bases and hit eight home runs. That's uh, you know, that's a good way to fill a stat sheet. Uh, we want to be careful not to extrapolate that just to uh, 140 or 60 games or what have you. But you know, there's a um, there's a you know mediocre batting average plus power and speed profile in here somewhere. Yeah, I thought so too. Mid teens in homers and and maybe slightly below that in uh, stolen bases, but double digits in both. If he doesn't get hurt, I think uh, Robbie Grossman could be a a nice guy to grab. Uh, moving on to the New York Yankees. A pretty solid offense, but they tried to shore up their rotation by adding a couple of looks like fairly high-risk additions to me, Bray. Uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Jamison Tyon and especially Corey Kluber. Uh, what's the take on those two pitchers joining the New York rotation, or will they join the New York rotation? I'm I'm curious what you think. 
Yeah, there's. Uh, I, I don't know if this is strategic on the Yankees' part, but they certainly have came, accumulated a bunch of, uh, shall we call them, high variance options in their rotation. You know, obviously Cole at the top is a mainstay, um, and the next healthiest guy who will, I guess, we'll call the number two for lack of a better. Um, lack of a better candidate is probably Jordan Montgomery. Uh, but after that, yeah, it's Kluber, it's Tyone, uh, Luis Severino, if he comes back at some point, uh, the rookie, Davey Garcia, who showed some flashes last year. Uh, but, but in terms of the two new guys, I mean, Kluber had a workout in January where I guess he turned some heads in a positive sense by topping out at, you know, 90 miles an hour or so in, you know, January showcase. And I guess the teams all sort of felt that if he was healthy and throwing 90 in January, as he ramped up, that could be 92, 93 by opening day. And apparently he had no shortage of offers and ended up on a one year, $11 million deal with the Yankees. But, you know, let's not forget that, you know, one showcase does not extrapolate to making 35 starts in a season. And, you know, this is a guy who I guess the good news is his recent injuries have not been in the arm. He he, he had it inside the arm. He had a fractured uh, ulna in his forearm off, off, I believe, a line drive that cost him almost all of 2019. And then last year it was um, a, a muscle tear in his it is Terrace Major, which I think is more like back of the shoulder than arm, right? So he, I don't believe any of that was surgical, but you were still talking about somebody who's thrown a total of 37 innings since 2018. So his workhorse days are well behind him as he now enters his age 35 season. Baseball HQ's projection for Kluber right now, 10 wins, a 111 whip, kind of serviceable, but a gun, the, uh, just like for the Yankees, I think the problem here with Kluber as a fantasy prospect is, uh, is the injury risk. I know those haven't been structural arm issues, but he's had a lot of injuries, you know, all the same. For sure. Um, and, you know, in, in that projection, I'd probably, you know, under, underscoring the point, I think the most questionable part of that projection is the 145 innings. Uh, I would probably take the under on that if you pushed, if you pushed me in one direction or the other. Uh, that seems like more like, uh, you know, 75% outcome than a, than, a, than a median 50% outcome. But the Yankees bet $11 million on the contrary. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe we put some faith in what they said. And heck, by comparison, uh, you know, 36 innings in the last two years is is also exactly what what we've seen from uh, Jamison Tyone, who was coming back from his second Tommy John surgery. He's also several years now, thankfully, removed from a cancer scare, as I recall, but, you know, did not pitch at all in 20 and has been out since early 2019 when he went down for the second Tommy John. So by the time opening day comes around, he's going to be something like 20, 21 months removed from that second Tommy John surgery, which is generally the time when we get excited about a player, a pitcher returning to somewhat normal stuff and command coming out of the surgery and the rehab. But the second surgery generally is associated with much poorer outcomes for the long term. So, you know, no guarantees with Tyone either. Tyone's projection at Baseball HQ is very similar to Kluber's. In fact, I wonder if their plan is to try to, you know, combine the two of them and get one useful starter for the entire season, counting days off and, oh, my, something's sore or I don't feel good. So, you know, stretching out and somehow com- cobble them together to get, uh, you know, 225 innings between them for the cost of 
basically what used to be one pitcher. So I guess there's that possibility as well. Uh, you're a Boston guy, Ray. Uh, they've made some very small moves. It must be disappointing for a team that used to be a perennial contender, big spender, none of that anymore. The big signing this year, I guess so far, Kike Hernandez. <laughs> is that a big deal? I don't know. He's going to play, I guess. Yeah, I guess he, I think he is going to play. And this is one of those cases where I think he opted to sign with Boston because of something amounting to a playing time guarantee and that the Sox have an opening at second base and Hernandez was, you know, in addition to shopping for the best contract he could get was also shopping for a place where he could be an everyday second baseman as opposed to the sort of super utility role he played with the Dodgers. So it seems like he's going to be given the opportunity to take over at second base here, which, you know, isn't a bad thing because the internal option options of, um, Christian Arroyo and Yairo Munoz and uh, the like were, you know, certainly uninspiring. So I don't have any trouble believing that Hernandez is a better option than those. And, you know, someone probably long-term, the answer there is Jeter Downs, but that, that might be late in 2021 or it might not be till 2022. So the door at second base is open for Hernandez and we'll see, uh, we'll see what he does there. His skill set is not, uninteresting and you know certainly it was it was more valuable with multi-position eligibility which he'll still have for this year um and you know Fenway Park is a much better place to hit than Dodger Stadium so uh, he could be a relatively productive bat the Red Sox also added a couple of pitchers Garrett Richards and Adam Ottavino again this rotation does not look solid at all probably put Richards in at number three with Nathan Eovaldi at the top is there any reason for optimism with these two relatively lesser shall we say pitching additions you can lump richards into the tyone kluber class we were talking about earlier and he even signed for a pretty similar contract to what kluber uh, you know he's 33 he's also got a very checkered injury history um and we've we're also projecting him from those for those same 145 innings right now is that too many his history would suggest probably he hasn't thrown that many innings this season since 2015. Heck, he's barely thrown that many that many innings total since 2015. Um, so I guess the best thing you can say about these additions to the Red Sox staff is that it's probably going to be somewhat better than last year, which was an absolute dumpster fire, but you know, still far short of contending quality. Uh, in the bullpen, the bullpen gets more interesting because I was having a conversation with offline with uh, Chris Olson, who covers the Red Sox and um, handles the playing time assignments for us. Uh, and also, um, it was a conversation actually triggered by something your uh, your frequent guest here, Todd Zola, did. Uh, I'm going to draft with Todd um, this week, and he took Adovino at a fairly early point, which made me suggest that he thought he was going to be the Red Sox closer. And I immediately reached out to Chris and said, hey, I just saw Todd do this. Todd seems to be thinking that he's going to be the closer. What do you think? And Chris said, you know, I was thinking that too. I'm actually writing, you know, I've, I've, my next article on the AL East for HQ is actually going to delve into the Adovino versus Matt Barnes decision and thinking along the lines of that the Sox as non-contenders may be looking to showcase Adovino and if they could get straightened out some of the problems he was having with the Yankees in the last couple of years in terms of pitch mix and control and problems with lefties and those sort of things, they can get him stabilized that they would rather 
have him close at least for three months and then see if they can flip him uh, at the trade deadline. So uh, I thought that was interesting. And I think um, our projections are likely going to shift to more of a job share or a mix between Barnes and Adovino as a result of that. Not that there's likely to be a lot of saves to share. No, because <laughs> I guess occasionally they'll be on the right side of the 10 to 9 game rather than the 9 to 10 game, right? Because yeah. they can't pitch, but they should still be able to hit a little bit. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, and finally, Ray, the White Sox made some big moves. Uh, they signed, first of all, Liam Hendricks. He takes column A spot. That's an upgrade. That is an upgrade. And, you know, he, fr- he front ends. You know, we talked a little bit about how column A was all smoke and mirrors last year, but the White Sox have better options, more skilled options behind Hendricks. So this becomes a very good bullpen. There's Aaron Bummer, who's been carrying closer skills for a couple of years now. Jimmy Cordero is kind of interesting. They have some young guys coming up in Cody Hoyer and Garrett Crochet who throw hard and you know are sort of shall we say, embryonic closers and waiting. So Hendricks front ends a very good White Sox bullpen here. And they also added Lance Lynn to the rotation earlier in the offseason. So this is probably one of the more traditional contending staffs you've seen, which with some innings eaters at the front of the, the rotation with Giolito, Lynn, and Keuchel, all of whom you can project you know, in, a, in, a, in a year where I'm not sure how many guys we can project for 175 or more innings. These guys, the White Sox have three guys who probably meet that criteria, and they've got a bunch of question marks and options behind them in the rotation and a traditional contending good bullpen with a multiple mix and match options. So the, this is a very good pitching staff. Yeah, Carlos Rodon uh, is going to be back too, and I, I think he's kind of a bit of a wild card. You know, there's a sort of a, I don't know if you want to call it a rule, but there's a principle by which a lot of fantasy players play, which is any anybody who was a first overall pick or a very, very highly rated prospect came up, struggled. It's the 10 steps, Alex Rodriguez, 10 steps to fantasy success kind of thing. Uh, Rodon certainly had his struggles, but at one point he was considered the best pitching prospect in baseball. Do you give that any credence? It's been a long time, but on the other hand, you know, there's so many injuries here and it's, it's almost hard to believe that he's still only 28, right? Right. And he's spent, you know, just eyeballing something like, 350 days on the DL in the last five years. Uh, so, you know, in some sense, you know, throwing in the fact that he's a lefty who throws hard and sometimes the lefties take a little longer to click in, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if he eventually found health, he would get very quickly interesting. Uh, you know, we, you were talking about what the Yankees are going to do, might be doing and trying to cobble together sort of tag team or partial season starts out of the likes of Kluber and Tyone. And you can see some of the same here with the White Sox, with Rodon and Michael Kopech, who is also coming back from uh, Tommy John surgery now, two years ago, he opted out of 2020, even though he was healthy. So he is even a, a few months more clear of his CJ than Tyone is. And so he's probably, by opening day, he's a two-plus years clear of it and should be ready to go. But he hasn't thrown an thrown an inning in anger in two years, and you can certainly imagine that his workload is going to be severely limited. So maybe between Rodon and Kopech, they tag team them, or they rotate on and off the roster, and they've still got guys like Dylan Cease and Ronaldo Lopez around to soak up some starts there. Each of them, you know, have been sort of you know middling to disappointing young pitchers, but you know 
are worthy of more opportunities at least. So again, when you have a disability that they probably have with their top three, three starters, they can afford to show some patience and be creative with the back two spots. Ray, uh, in, in this discussion that you've been laying out some of the pitching situations, there's also been a lot of news or a lot of noise, maybe it's better to describe, about teams considering or having already adopted six-man rotations. How do you see that playing out? Is it going to happen a lot, or is it just going to happen occasionally? Where's the six-man rotation in your mind? It's becoming a very significant consideration for me from the projections point of view. Uh, we're still a little unclear about the rules we talked about the NLDH earlier. Um, I'm not still not totally clear about whether some of the some of the negotiations going on between players and owners actually add another roster spot the way they added for much of last year, um, which might facilitate more of these either six man rotations or the other thing you hear about some teams wanting to do is more of the the tandem starter than the, than the opener, where you know you get a three inning pitcher and then another three inning pitcher. In particular, uh, somebody was I think it was the Angels was talking we're talking about. Something along those lines, but yeah, I think the days of the five man every fifth day, um, you know, five guys rotating, taking thirty three starts each, are you know, it's coming off of the short workload last year. The way that so many minor leaguers who might have plugged into these rotations missed the season altogether. Uh, there's going to be a lot more spreading around of innings this year, whether it means there's an additional roster spot or whether it just means there's a lot of churn on and off the active roster. I, th I think there are going to be very few pitchers who crack the 175 inning mark this year. And finally, the White Sox uh, re-signed or resumed their connection with Adam Eaton, a former White Sox outfielder. He comes back on a free agent contract. Uh, looks like he fits right into the top of the order, plays right field as usual. And do you expect him to resume being Adam Eaton? Yeah, you would think so. He does look like a good fit for this lineup, which uh, you know is pretty right-handed. So he plugs in from the left side with some OBP, and you know he's another one of those guys like we were talking about earlier with Simmons, who you know years ago we you know we thought there might be some significant speed to develop here, and with injuries and what have you, that never really came about. But he's still a nice OBP table setter, top of the lineup kind of hitter. Uh, he'll take the spot that you know, was. Most recently, Nomar Mazzara last year. Uh, the other guy who subtracts from this lineup is Edwin Encarnacion. He's a free agent who hasn't signed yet, but unlikely to be back here, mostly because uh, his job probably goes to prospect Andrew Vaughn, who will become the first base slash DH partner for Jose Abreu. Uh, a third, former third overall pick, a top 10 first base prospect, you know, with a, you know, interestingly, a polished approach, you know, isn't just, you know, a, a young slugger who hasn't really figured out what's going on at the plate yet. He, you know, exhibits, you know, we expect him to show a double digit walk rate right off the bat with, you know, acceptable contact as well. Uh, you know, not a, you know, not an elite power hitter right away, but, you know, someone who, you know, fits nicely into this lineup, more of a, more of a veteran kind of skill set in a young first baseman. And, you know, we may have to wait a little bit for the power, but um, almost reminds me a little bit of in the profile of a, uh, of a Kevin Euclid type. 
And not a bad type to profile as, you know, uh, Euclid was a really good offensive player and a pretty good fantasy asset too, especially in OBP leagues, the Greek God of Walks and all that sort of thing. I'm just curious about Vaughn's place in the lineup, uh, considering playing time considerations, how soon do they want to bring him up, that sort of thing, because it looks like the outfield, uh, Eaton, Luis Robert and Adam Engel um, might create a little bit of a crowd uh, because uh, you also got Eloy Jimenez who currently profiles as the DH to open the season. Yeah, you're right. They've got, they can afford to be patient here, especially, you know, Vaughn spent last year at the alternate site and, you know, they'll probably want to have him get some reps before they call him up. You're right. They have extra outfielders. If you figure Jimenez, Robert and Eaton are the three outfielders, then, as you said, Engel gets some playing time as the fourth guy. He's a better fielder than Eloy, so you would think anytime they want to start him, they would, you're right. It would be Eloy. You move to DH. Uh, you know, they, and they've got still Lurie Garcia laying around, who I, I, he might he might be a free agent. I forget, but he could easily return here. But point being, they could use uh, you know an infield super sub to get guys like Madrigal or Mancata or Abreu over to uh, the DH from time to time as well. So they've they've got a lot of ways to sort of band-aid that spot that we think will eventually become Vaughn's, but may not be right out of the gate. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Uh, He's a first round pick, uh, I think you said in 2019, but he of course didn't get to play at all very much in 2020, if you, depending on how you think about that uh, alternate training site experience, it's not really as competitive as real minor league baseball. So uh, I guess we'll see. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Andrew Vaughn. And I think he might be one of those guys you think about targeting in a reserve round or a later pick in a sort of a long draft of the expectation that he's going to come up sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's, um, you know, I, I certainly, you know, you wouldn't expect him to start the season, but uh, you, you know, if you dra- if you draft him late at a price that says like if you get him in you know a month or six weeks into the season you're ahead of the game, and if it's to- and if you end up waiting for more like forty percent or half of the season you're still you still have a shot at making your money back, then that that seems like the right price point to me. And it depends on what you're going to do with the roster spot in the meantime. Of course, in a 50-man draft, you don't have to worry about that kind of thing. But if you are playing in a more limited roster format, NFBC or Tout or something like that, where you have to be um, careful with your reserve slot, shall we say, because you can't really afford to carry a guy for half a year because you need the spots for injuries and so forth, the uh, guys you want to have in backup. So a lot, a lot of stuff to think about with Andrew Vaughn, but it's an interesting thing to think about. We may revisit it in future uh, sessions with the American League Market News. Ray, thanks very much for stepping up. Show number one went real well, I thought, and I look forward to talking with you throughout the season. Can't wait, Patrick. Catch you next week. Ray Murphy is co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site. Next up, it's our new HQ Spotlight segment, where we introduce one of the staff analysts and writers at BaseballHQ.com. We'll have Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist, in just a second. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, Christopher Olsen takes a spin through the teams in the American League East, including the Red Sox bullpen, some cool relations between the Yankees and catcher Gary Sanchez, and more in the GM's office. Co-General Manager Ray Murphy is back. He's auditing HQ's player projections during a draft. 
And in facts and flukes, performance validation analyst Brian Rudd looks at five American leaguers, including Eloy Jimenez, G-Man Choi, and Yusei Kikuchi. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, as I mentioned, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse and injury analysis in Matthew Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt. We also have that groundbreaking fantasy baseball research that BaseballHQ.com is famous for and tools like the player projections updated daily. We have daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers all during the season. When you add it up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our HQ Spotlight, where we introduce one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ, and it's my pleasure to welcome Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist. Ryan, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's good to be back, PD. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on and let me letting me kick off this HQ Spotlight segment. I think yeah. is what you're calling it. Yes, I am. Uh, we have such a, a tremendous bench strength at Baseball HQ that I thought. You know, people need to know about all the great analysts that we have, the great writers that we have at the site, and and uh, so they understand just what great value it is. Uh, let's start by talking about some drafts. I know you're one of the younger fellows who has lots of time on his hands despite a, a little baby in your house. Uh, how many drafts have you done this year so far? Um, I've, I've done, I guess, one and a half. I've done one, and I'm in one right now, so... Um... Actually, that's a little bit, yeah, that's a little bit le- a fewer drafts than I would normally be at this time of year. Kind of slow played it a little bit just with the uncertainty of the season and, and things like that. But um, yeah, completed uh, two drafts. I did one real early in November, a total blind recency bias draft where I just took last year's ADP oh, yeah. and drafted off of that. And then, uh, yeah, this year for the uh, the current draft, I'm in first pitch Arizona speakers draft, and that that's been a lot of fun. Um, Greg Ambrose has put that together at the NFBC, and myself, Ray Murphy, and Doug Dennis are all in a row drafting 13, 14, 15 at the back end of the wheel. So we've been taking each other's guys and and, and giving each other uh, jibes in the in the draft room. Well, I'm familiar with uh, you taking other guys' guys from Tout Wars last year, and we'll maybe revisit that uh, later on. Uh, have you seen any themes emerging in the larger sense in the drafts that not necessarily you've been in, but also the ones you've been following, the experts' drafts? There's a lot of NFPC and so forth. Uh, have you seen any themes emerging that are a little different or surprising to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I the the biggest thing that I've seen, and this is it's been pretty crazy to me, is just the price of pitching and really starting pitching is just through the roof. Especially like most years, starting pitching kind of gets pushed up towards um, you know mid late March, but it's early February and t- we've got twelve starters going in the top thirty. So in a, in a fifteen team league, almost everybody has a starting pitcher in the first two rounds. And it doesn't really slow down from there. Twenty three starting or twenty three pitchers going in the first sixty picks. So um, that's been a major theme for me so far in, in these drafts. Is just everyone talks about getting getting their quote unquote ace or getting a 
getting an early pitcher or multiple early pitchers, you're definitely going to have to pay up to be able to do that because um, I, I, I can't remember a year where, where starting pitching has been so expensive uh, this early in, in draft season. So that that's really stood out to me so far. I've been thinking about this, and I wonder, there seems to me to be two possible explanations, and, and it could be a combination of both, but explanation number one for me is that the idea of pitching being risky has been de-emphasized over the last few years, and, and people are looking at you know a guy like Bieber last year in the short season, but even uh, in past seasons, that sometimes the most valuable player at the end of the season turns out to have been a starting pitcher because of their impact on uh, multiple categories and their reliability, guys like Verlander and so forth. And then the other thing is, once that sort of cycle starts rolling, then all the rest of the people who may not even believe it start thinking, well, wait a second, I'm going to get shut out here if I don't join the crowd and at least get my my first starter much earlier than I'm comfortable with doing. And so now you've got everybody piling in and it becomes kind of a self-reinforcing cycle in a way. How do you how do you explain this uh, this growing interest in having pitchers so early or so costly in the case of auctions? Yeah, I think I, th- I think I think you're spot on there, PD. Like, yeah, and, and our research has shown, and, and longtime HQ subscribers have or uh, should be familiar with the Santana plan, which which really does say like over time your um, your safest quote unquote safest investments are that top tier of starting pitching. Most years they are the ones who return the most um, value on that on that investment. So I, I think the market is waking up to that. I think the other thing too is in this hitting environment, uh, starting pitch, elite starting pitchers are really at a premium. That's another thing I'm noticing. Like once you get out of the first maybe 80 picks, the starting pitching pool just totally plummets. Um, there, it, it falls off a cliff really fast, not in terms of just like the market price, but the actual talent and skill. A lot of these pitchers I'm finding myself um, and a lot of other people too, and it's starting to become a group think thing where I, I'm getting those those early pitchers, maybe two early pitchers, and then just pounding hitting in those middle rounds because um, I think more than ever the 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 mid tier of pitching is just so much worse than it used to be. Um, you used to be able to wait and get like a, get your first starter in the fourth or fifth round, and you usually got a pretty good guy. Now, if you wait that late, um, you're you're kind of playing with fire there. So I think it's those two things. It's it's everyone kind of realizing that an elite starting pitcher, if you hit on it, um, can really be a game changer. And that middle mid tier um, pitching talent is just not what it was. Those guys are getting getting rocked and hit pretty hard. So I think a combination of those two, and then it kind of becomes like an echo chamber in terms of everyone's doing it. So uh, it just becomes the, the group think scenario is, is, is kind of my two cents on it. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much how it works. Uh, it wasn't that long ago where I could get a, uh, my strategy was usually to wait till the fifth round and I'd get a Jose Barrios or a guy like that and, you know, several guys like that in the su- succeeding rounds and, and managed to put together a, a useful, if not dominant, pitching staff. But meanwhile, I was really rocking up on the hitting early on. And I, I don't know, how how are you responding to it? Is there any way you can see forward to just not following the crowd and doing what you were going to do anyway and just bash away at the hitting early and, and take your chances trying to use sort of skills basis picks for those mid-tier pitchers and maybe try to catch some lightning in a bottle, get a, you know, this year's Denelson Lamette or, or somebody like that based on track record or minor league record or something like that? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's the in my opinion that's the that's kind of the golden ticket. Whoever can crack that code and 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 do that the the proper zig when everyone else is zagging is really going to be in an advantage this season because um, yeah, you either have to play along and and grab those two early pitchers or grab. I know a lot of people talking about like grabbing three pitchers in the first five rounds and that sort of thing. Um, but if everyone does that, <laughs> you're drafting like the you know, 60th best pitcher in the fifth round. And that's obviously not going to work. So, um, yeah, I think there is a, a, a path there where you load up on hitting first and, and try and find your targets in the middle rounds for starting pitching. Like I said, it's, um, it, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of a wasteland. So in, in my draft prep, I'm really focusing on evaluating pitching in those middle tiers to try and find some of those guys like in the rounds maybe six through 15 ish that i can stock up on and 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 send if nobody else is taking pitching in those middle rounds um, a lot of those guys are going to be around so i i think that's the play that's the that's if you want to go against the grain but um you better not miss with some of those mid-tier pitchers because uh, i i think you're going to get burned if you uh if you if you don't pick the right guys, which I know is uh, super smart analysis, but that's true every year. So, how long have you been at baseballhq.com, Ryan? Uh, I have been here actually almost ten years. Um, yeah, I got the e- I remember getting the email from Ron Chandler. the The email, uh, yeah, it was uh, fall of twenty eleven. So, started writing for HQ. Uh, the following season, so it's it's been a little while. Not as not as long as you or some others on the on the, on the staff. I know uh, I was talking with with Ray Murphy and Doug Dennis and and Brent Hershey, and they've been there since oh, I think twenty years um, at least. So, um, but yeah, ten years is is pretty good for me, and uh, it's 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 flown by. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, what did you start out? What was your role when you started? Yeah, so my role, I actually applied. Um, uh, I've been a subscriber since like 2009 and saw that uh, HQ put out the help wanted sign and I just applied and um, you know wrote some sample pieces and, and that sort of thing and and was lucky enough to get an offer. It's kind of funny. I was telling uh, Ray this and this was a little known fact, but uh, I actually pitched a really like simple article before I was hired on HQ um, looking at like guys with really high babbits or, or hit rates as we call them. And, uh, and Ray politely rejected my, my pitch and, and said, you know, great idea. However, you know, what, whatever, whatever the actual you know, text was, but, uh, but yeah, got rejected before I was accepted. I, I kept at it. So, um, I started, I actually, so my first role with HQ when I first started up was, uh, I think it was called like series matchups. This was before we had the daily matchups, but we would preview starting pitching over like a three game series. So. Um, started with that, did that for a year or two, moved over and did, uh, playing time tomorrow, uh, for the NL West, covered that for a few years, did some facts and flukes. And then more recently took on social media role. Also obviously did some, uh, HQ radio hits with you PD over the years. So remember the metric minute was one of the, uh, was one of the classics and then, uh, just some matchup stuff on, on HQ radio. So, um, just kind of building up and, and moving around over the years, but, uh, most recently doing, uh, running the social media for the site and also, uh, running the speculator column, which, uh, which we run every Wednesday on the site, been doing that for, uh, the last couple of years and it's just a ton of fun. So, uh, kind of been hop all over the place and, uh, enjoying every minute of it. 
You know, your story about uh, that first article that you wrote for uh, for Baseball HQ re- reminds me, and this is a story, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, you may have heard before, but I, I followed the same path. I was a subscriber. They hung out the help wanted sign. I, I was a newspaper man, so I was pretty good at writing anyway, and I thought, way to, you know, get more involved in fantasy baseball, which I was kind of starting out, and I really liked it, so... And I like the theory of it, so I I sent in a, an application with my little resume and stuff, and Ron got back to me. He says, "Okay, you know, you've made the first cut at least. Write an article following these rules." And it was it was basically like a mini facts and flukes thing. And uh, in that article, I concluded with great confidence that Brad Fulmer was going to be a perennial All Star. <laughs> And Ichiro Suzuki was never going to hit in the big leagues. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> and I got hired anyway. And, of course, it turned out to be the about the worst thing. It's a good thing they didn't say, we'll get back to you in five years, because uh, it would have been, we'll get back to you in 100 years, uh, i.e. never. So, uh, <laughs> But they, you know what they were looking for was the analysis aspect, the ability to explain yourself, to use the tools and use the nomenclature of baseball, HQ, that kind of stuff. So, And, yeah, it's been a very long time and a lot of fun. It is great. To, to work here. It's great to read the site. Uh, you mentioned that you're the speculator columnist. Uh, before we talk about specific columns of late, uh, what are the operating principles of the speculator column? How do you approach it? Yeah, so the speculator, I mean, it's been around for a long time. Uh, Ray Murphy really, you know, bred this thing and, and made it what it was. And then and Ray handed it down to me um, a couple of years ago. I said, you know, don't mess it up. And I've trying trying not to do that since then. Um, the speculator is a really cool concept, though. It, the purpose of it is really to just open your eyes to the possibilities of things that could happen if things break a certain way. We usually run a disclaimer at the bottom of, of every article saying that these are, you know, kind of percentage plays, maybe 20, 30 percent plays that uh, if things break the right way, if a guy stays healthy or falls into a starting job or, or what have you. Um, that these outcomes could happen based on the skills. It is all rooted in in skills analysis, but we do kind of take that extra step and 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 kind of go out on a limb with some of this stuff. And and I think that's um, it, it's good. Like I said, opens the reader's eyes, but c- because we get so bogged down, and especially if you if you're prepping for kind of months on end before the season, you get you, you think of a player and you immediately think of their current uh, market price, their current ADP. You immediately think of their uh, standard projection as a single number, and you kind of take that as gospel. And so what we're trying to do with the speculators is just try and find new, fresh angles of analysis and then slice data in a different way um, to make it more unique than, than anything else that's out there. So that's really what uh, that's really kind of the core principle of the speculator is to is to try and find those those fresh angles and different ways to look at players that um, that normally you wouldn't look at uh, that way so i think the key point in in what you've said is the idea that we look at these projections when we see them and and uh, most of the projection systems that are out there are pretty good and they follow basically the same kinds of rules they're tweaking around marcel the monkey basically uh, you know three-year weighted averages and then there are tweakages that go on and Ray's are different from Todd Zola's are different from Ariel Cohen's and so forth. But that's essentially how it works. But we look at the numbers on the page and we say the likely outcome 
is going to be right in that area. If it says 24 home runs, we're talking about 25 or 23. But in actual fact, it's it's the median of a big range of outcomes from, you know, a 12 home run performance or a 35 home run performance are within the range of possible outcomes. We're just taking the, like the middle of the possible range. And I guess what you're doing is you're saying, let's look at the 90th percentile outcome for a bunch of guys and see, you know, where the possibilities lie. And I think that's a really good way to look at it because it's very hard to portray the projections economically uh, as, uh, as a range of outcomes without actually writing down all the range of outcomes, which would be like four pages for each player. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I think anyone who runs those projection systems will tell you exactly that too. Like it is, you know, it's a range of outcomes. But yeah, like I'm we're not gonna as as readers, as people who, you know, read the data, we're I'm not gonna look at ten different Charlie Blackman projections from ten percentile to ninety percentile. It's just it's way too much to look at. So um so yeah, you you hit that right on the head. Like the projections we look at are just one line. It's kind of the, the median expected outcome. But uh yeah, I'm trying to find those edges at ninetieth percentile or sometimes the tenth percentile if right. I want to get dark and <laughs> and 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 speculate on what could go wrong with uh with certain players as well. So I, I do try and cover um both spectrums. Um usually it's the more positive side, but uh it does it does help. I last year I ran a, a couple articles on like who is this year's Nick Pavetta from a couple years ago, someone who just got pushed up in drafts and uh and and basically just fell apart. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I try and look at it, uh, look at it both ways. Well, near the end of January, Ryan, you had a column called switching it up about pitchers, pitch mix changes. Uh, we talked about that earlier with Nick, but where did the idea come from? Yeah. So the idea came from actually, I mean, it's, it's pitch level data has been around for the last couple of years. So we, we have the data available to us in terms of like what types of pitches pitchers are throwing, um, how hard they're throwing it, how many, how many whiffs and things like that. So we, 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 we have the data available. The kind of impetus behind the column is, and again, going back to projection systems, like a lot of the in different variants, but it, a lot of it is kind of like a weighted average of the past few years. Well, with with pitchers, I I certainly feel that pitchers can really almost reinvent themselves and change quickly, um, either by switching up their pitch mix or finding a new pitch, um, picking up velocity. I think if if we look at those kinds of things, those kind of tangible approach changes for a pitcher, I think we can jump the gun on even in a even in a sixty game season. We can say, hey, and Corbin Burns was like the the, the headliner. Hey, Corbin Burns threw. Uh, through a new cutter last year that he's never thrown before and he got a tons of whiffs and ground balls with it like I actually think he's a different pitcher than um, he has been in previous seasons so I'm more willing to kind of weigh the most recent season in that case and I think the ultimate example is was uh, Lucas Giolito who we were talking about before we came on air um, Giolito was like literally the worst pitcher in baseball I believe in 2018 and switched up his pitch mix, picked up a couple miles on the on the miles per hour on the fastball and broke out in 2019 and the thought there was yeah, different guy than he was. The projection system is going to wait 2018 more than I want to. And so I look at a guy like Giolito who basically reinvented himself and uh weighing the success more than the failure and and it turns out, you know, that's that was a pretty good call, right? Because Giolito was really good in 2020 
and I expect him to be really good again in 2021. So, so that's the uh, that's kind of the method behind this column is looking at guys who who switched up their pitch mix the most from 2019 to 2020, because I think those 2020 results we can put a lot more stock in as opposed to just like a normal three year weighted average. That's right, and it's a real interesting conundrum for projections people to figure out how much weight can we put on 2020 because it was a short season. But when you're talking about individual pitches, it's still a lot of pitches. It's enough to get a pretty good-sized sample and, and start figuring out what's working for these guys and what's not working for these guys. And I think there's been an emphasis in Major League Baseball, especially among the smarter teams, that we should emulate as fantasy managers, which is a lot more teams are looking at a pitcher's pitch mix and they're going, you know, you throw 50% four-seam fastballs and it's a terrible pitch. It gets hit all over the place. You're giving up like uh, 890 slugging or whatever on this pitch. you got to throw that pitch less often or abandon it altogether. Meanwhile, you're throwing your sinker 3% of the time and it's your best pitch. So what you need to do is throw pitches that work and don't throw pitches that don't work. And I think that realization that fastball first is not always necessarily the best approach if your fastball is pedestrian or has no movement even though it's you know got good velocity and, and so forth the results kind of speak for themselves and that's really interesting nick and i talked about your aaron nola commentary and another national league pitcher that you highlighted was joe musgrove he's in san diego now and i've been seeing a lot of buzz about joe musgrove but i haven't seen anything about pitch mix what did you notice about uh, joe musgrove yeah, Musgrove uh, really, really switched things up and, and, and picked up a curveball last year. So in 2019, he threw his curveball uh, 10% of the time. 2020, he doubled that usage. So so Musgrove um, picked up 10% usage on the curveball. And so then you ask, you know, is the curveball good? And what gives, right? Because if you're throwing something 10% more of the time, um, you need to be throwing something. 10% less of another pitch. So he faded his forcing fastball, which is pretty marginal. I mean, that's actually like the exact <clears throat> example you were talking about, PD, is, is Musgrove's uh, fastball gets gets hit pretty hard. So he dropped the usage of his fat four-seamer from 37 to 27%, and then the, the curveball filled that void. And the curveball was a much better pitch, a 17% swinging strike rate and a 71% ground ball rate. Both of those are really elite pitches, or really elite characteristics of a pitch to be able to miss bats and get ground balls. And then on top of that, when you fade your one of your worst pitches in order to throw more curveballs, you're throwing less to that bad pitch. So um, it really, uh, I think, came out in, in Musgrove's favor. And the 2020 skills were, were pretty much off the charts. I mean, in the forecaster, we gave Musgrove an upside projection of a 350 ERA and 200 strikeouts. Again, that's not our base projection, but going back to what we were talking about with, um, you know, with different percentiles, like that's within his range of outcomes. And a big reason for that was, was the skills in 2020. And a big reason for the skills in 2020 going one level deeper is that change in pitch mix. So, um, so yeah, like Musgrove made a, you know, tangible change to his approach. It it showed through in the skills and um, not really even in the results. Like a 386 ERA on the surface is is just okay. But uh, but but there's some there's a lot go a lot of good going on under the hood with uh, with Musgrove. So I'm excited to see him in, in San Diego and see what he does. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was thinking about when we talk about at Baseball HQ, we talk about skills metrics and we talk about. 
strikeouts per nine, which we changed that this year to strikeout percentage, walk percentage, and so forth. I wonder if we're going to have to change the name of that at some point down the road because they're still outcomes. They're not skills. The skill is throwing the ball in such a way that it gets hit poorly or, or swung and missed at, I mean, and over the strike zone, of course, is something of a skill as well, like just command in general. But I wonder if at some point in the future we're going to be getting like uh, into the work like Alex Chamberlain and others are doing where it's coming down to the actual inch-by-inch movement of various pitches because that's a repeatable skill which leads to better outcomes that currently we call skills but are actually outcomes based on skills. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, a strikeout is a tangible result in the box score. And so like... Yeah, I mean, and, and the exciting thing with pitch mix stuff, and, and for this article, I, I, I pretty much looked at um, the strike percentage, swinging strike, and, and ground ball rate. But, I mean, you kind of alluded to this, and Alex Chamberlain is one of the kind of the, the pioneers on, on, on pitch research. But we're getting to the point now where we're looking at uh, individual spin rates on pitches. Um, we're looking at movement, horizontal movement, vertical movement, release points. There's things now where you're looking at, like, tunneling. Of pitches so you're actually combining two pitches like pablo lopez is an example of this where he throws like a cutter a curveball and a fastball and they all look the same about 40 feet to the mound and then they all break in different directions so um, people are finding ways to be able to quantify that and how pitches kind of play off each other and so yeah it's really exciting and i know we're kind of getting a little futuristic here but um but that's the kind of stuff that that's really fun to research and not only just fun to research, but if you find those kind of guys who the results haven't shown up in the skills, but they have those, those things, those tunnels, um, those effective individual pitches, those are the guys you can get a jump on and a head start on and, and, and speculate on those guys. So it's, um, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And I think we're just now kind of scratching the surface as to what we can capture and, 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 and analyze. Alex Chamberlain will be a guest here at Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday, March the 9th, by the way. On the American League side of your column, uh, Ryan, you had an interesting name, Detroit left-hander Matt Boyd. And <laughs> this is a guy, every year it seems like somebody says, I've got a new reason to think Matt Boyd's going to be better. And he never is, basically. But w- what did Boyd change and how did that uh, affect his outcomes? <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt Boyd was... If, if any listeners are still with us and, and had Matt Boyd last year, thank you for powering through because uh, it was brutal last season. 671 ERA, 148 whip. Even the skills, like we had Matt Boyd down for a 492 XERA. So obviously that's, you know, almost two runs better than his, uh, than his actual ERA, but still really bad. So that just uh, shows how bad Matt Boyd was last year. However, um, a couple things to consider with Matt Boyd is the market has totally shunned him. Uh, Matt Boyd is going outside the top 300 in drafts, uh, whereas last year, everybody was was pretty high on Matt Boyd. I believe he was like in the ninth or 10th round, um, but also introduced a changeup into his arsenal and changeup he threw 6% of the time in 2019, bumped that up to 17% in 2020. And it was a fantastic pitch, a 26% swinging strike rate, which is really, really elite for a changeup. The average changeup uh, whiff rate last season was 12%. 
and and Matt Boyd's throwing his at 26%. So, um, and still only throwing at 17% of the time. So while he upped his usage of the changeup, it's still a pretty underutilized pitch. And Matt Boyd also has a really good slider that he threw just 22% of the time. So what is Matt Boyd doing or what did he do last year that was so bad? It was his four seam fastball just got, just got creamed and he threw it 50% of the time. So this isn't more, this is more of just not what Matt Boyd did last year, but these are changes that I think Boyd could make in 2021. Like he has the ingredients. If he, if he um, kind of smooths out that usage and, and maybe fades that four seam percent goes from 50%, maybe down to 35 or 40 and replace that with a really good slider and a really good changeup, like there's a path for him to be not only usable again, but um, actually pretty good. So, and again, the cost is, is, is minimal because people are still licking their wounds, myself included, um, on 2020's disaster of a season. So I just thought that was interesting that uh, he's got some pieces in place if he can, if he can switch it up in, uh, in 2021. I was thinking exactly the same thing when I saw those numbers of 50% of a bad pitch and, and sort of 20-ish percentages on good pitches. It seems obvious that somebody somewhere is going to say, hey, Matt, you know, let me clue you in on something. Your, fa- your fastball is getting nailed and these other two pitches are really good, so throw less of the one that's getting nailed and more of the good ones. But I wonder, is there a problem with curtailing the use of a four-seam fastball in a case like Matt Boyd's for off-speed pitches because some of the usefulness of off-speed pitches is because they contrast with the fastball in speed movement. So uh, if he stopped throwing the fastball, all of a sudden now he's, he's, he hasn't got that speed movement contrast that he would ordinarily have had. So there's got to be some kind of optimal point where you're throwing enough fastballs that they get the idea of that velocity so that you can offset the, make a better contrast with those off-speed offerings. No, that's spot on. Like you can't, yeah, like it, it's totally unreasonable to say, oh, your slider and changeup are great. Just throw those every single pitch, like 50% of the time like that. Yeah, that's not going to work. Um, there is, I mean, it does seem, and, and it'd be a really good research topic to kind of look what that, you know, how low, almost like a how low can you go with the four seam fastball um, before, yeah, you kind of see those diminishing returns. I know, you know, Cleveland has been, you know, out front in, in their pitching development and having their pitchers like a Shane Bieber, a Zach Plesak last year, having their pitchers throw their secondaries in, in, in lieu of um, the fastball. And I think most of those guys are down to like 35% fastball usage. I, I don't see too many other guys that go far below that. So just kind of a off the cuff, um, educated guess is once you kind of get below that number around 35 percent um it does you know guys are just waiting on those secondary pitches so you do have to it's it it, you're right it's not as simple as just oh don't throw your fastball anymore Um, these pitches do play off each other kind of what i was talking about with the tunneling before and you do need to kind of keep hitters on their toes but but that said yeah like a mad boy throwing it 50 percent of the time i think he could knock that down 10 percent and still be fine and replace that with uh with better secondary pitches. So we'll see. We'll see what, what, what adjustments he makes because uh, he does need to make some. <laughs> well, when Nick and I were talking about Aaron Nola, 
we noticed that Aaron Nola, in fact, throws all four of his pitches roughly a quarter of the time. And that yep. seems to be working for him. I mean, it, it helps that he's got that fourth excellent pitch. But, uh, you know, maybe uh, if you're Matt Boyd, you could get down to 30-30-30-10 or something like that and uh, really mess with their minds. It would be interesting. Uh, your most recent speculator column was called the BF21 Uplist Batters. What does that mean when it's decoded? That, that rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, doesn't it? Um, the BF 21 uplist batter. So for people who have the baseball forecaster, and I actually mentioned this with Joe Musgrove, if, you know, we have our base projection, um, but for certain guys where they're, you know, the kind of the, the skills are trending that way, we will throw an upside or downside projection. Um, if everything breaks right, or if everything breaks wrong at the end of their player box. So it's more of just like a speculative, this guy could, and going back to the Musgrove example, <clears throat> This guy, if, if things break the right way, could go 350 ERA with 200 strikeouts, like as a 90th percentile. So that's what that's what uh, the up list and the down list are, is for this article. And, and I'll do the pitchers next week. But um, I took all the batters in the in the 2021 baseball forecaster. I took every single one who had an upside um, comment in their player box and then listed them out here in the article. And, and, and Ray Murphy started this. This has been kind of an annual tradition in The Speculator, so um, he kind of started this up. And then we take that list, and then since the forecaster is written in October, um, I try and take a look at guys whose outlooks have changed since press time. Because, I mean, it doesn't really, doesn't really make sense to just rehash the same reasons why these guys have upside projections in the article. I mean, you can read the player box, uh, for those reasons, but I'm trying to then take uh, those kind of contextual factors. Did guys switch teams? Are they moving up or down in the order? And and just kind of give an update for for the guys who uh, who might have different outlooks than from from last fall. In the American League, you expended quite a bit of ink, or whatever the online equivalent is. You expected uh, you expended quite a few pixels, we'll say, on the big changes in Toronto. Where are the mad upsides in Dunedin or Buffalo or maybe even Toronto? Yeah, uh, that's yeah one of the one of the many unknowns still for the 2021 season. But uh, yeah, I did focus a lot on Toronto. They've been, uh, as you know, one of the more active players in the uh, in the free agent market and the trade market um, this year. And and we liked a lot of the Toronto hitters in the forecaster. We gave upside projections to Kevin Biggio. He had an upside projection of 25 homers, 25 steals. Um, we had an upside projection for Rowdy Tellez of upside of 30 home runs and Randall Gritchick upside of a 275 batting average and 35 homers. Um, so really, you know, we we really like what we see from those guys. But a lot has changed in Toronto since then, right? With the we, the obvious addition of George Springer, but then also Marcus Semien. There's a lot of moving pieces and, and people speculating on uh, not only who is going to play, but if they play. Uh, where are they going to hit, and what that what what what's that new batting order going to look like? So um, I kind of speculate on that with Biggio, like his uh, you know Kevin Biggio's upside of twenty five twenty five. That could you know he could he could blow that out of the water if he hits at top of the lineup, hits one or two, um, and, and piles up those plate appearances uh, at top Toronto's lineup. But um, the flip side of that is there's so much talent now in Toronto. Like you want to hit in a good lineup, but when does it become too good? And Kevin Biggio gets pushed down the order and hits, you know, seventh. Uh, will those obviously you won't you don't get as many plate appearances um, hitting down the order, but will you get those stolen base opportunities as well? 
Um, you know, I, I tend to think that Vigio will hit near the top of the lineup. He's, he's a great walk guy, gets on base. He's got a 368 on base percentage. Uh, but that's something I'm definitely going to look at and something I think in spring training we can look at too to see where is Vigio being used in spring training lineups. Like forget how he does. Um, it's it, where is he hitting in the lineup? That, that might give us a clue as to where he's going to hit in, in the regular season and therefore if he can hit that 25-25 upside projection. Yeah, it's interesting. If he's down the down the order, you expect maybe uh, a few more stolen bases because you know, uh, although in that order there's going to be somebody good pretty much in every slot except uh, the catcher, and maybe with Kirk uh, even that. I would bet, and there's a lot of speculation going on in the Toronto media about what the batting order is going to look like, and I would bet that Biggio starts the season hitting second. But if not, it'll be Simeon, and then he'll be down 6th or 7th, something like that. So that's a problem. The real losers here are going to be Telez and Randall Gritchuk because there's just no place for them to play. Uh, maybe at least not full-time. They'll get their at-bats you know, sharing the DH spot, 4th outfielder, occasional start at first base for, te- for Telez. But yeah, the playing time situation certainly has has adjusted everything since that article uh, came out in the in the baseball forecaster. Now in the National League, San Francisco looks like upside central, and one of the guys you mentioned there is Mauricio Dubon. What's the deal with him? Yeah, San Francisco, and, and this is kind of it's kind of funny too. So we talk about like how Toronto is a great lineup, and you want to be in there, but then it almost might get too good, and you get pushed down. San Francisco is right like the opposite, like not the greatest lineup. However, the flip side to that is those guys are going to play and they're going to play every day. And in, in Dubon's case, he might uh, play and hit near the top of the order for a bad team. Um, plate appearances are king. So uh, Dubon is uh, really interesting to me. Yeah, upside of, of 2020, we put it, uh, 20 homers and 20 steals. We slapped on Dubon in the um, in the baseball forecaster. So. Um, you know, it's interesting. He's, you know, a seven B prospect. So for, for folks that uh, don't know HQ's, um, prospect ratings, we projected Devon to be a, a pretty high floor, not, you know, amazing ceiling prospect. The thing that I really like with him is, um, uh, again, playing every day, but multi-eligibility, he's eligible in the outfield and then played eight games at second base and shortstop last year. So depending on your, uh, position eligibility rules, you could have a second base shortstop outfield target with, um, that 2020 upside. And that's really rare, especially where Mauricio Dubon's going in drafts, uh, just inside the top 300. Um, I didn't mention this at the top of the segment, PD, but one of the other things I'm noticing in drafts is just that that, that stolen bases dry up really quick. So if you can get um, a late stolen base guy like Dubon, um, we're projecting 13 homers, 11 steals. But again, we think there's some some room for growth there um, in a lineup where he's going to play every single day. And San Francisco uh, is not as or did not play as much of a, of a pitcher's park last year as it as it normally does or as we're, we're thinking of. Uh, they moved the fences in and had some some wind currents and things changed that made it a better hitters part. So that kind of confluence of things at Dubon's draft price, he's age 26. That That's typically kind of the time when, when guys are going to break out when they get that chance. And so um, it's worth taking a stab at, at somebody like that, given the, uh, given the draft price. I was looking at that Giants batting order too, and I wonder uh, Dubon may compete for a spot at the top. He's going to have to beat Tommy Lastella, I think, with the big contract likely probably get the top of the order spot. And then Donovan Solano, I think, is the guy he's going to be competing with for that second spot. But even if he's hitting ninth, uh, you know, in the National League, or hitting eighth, I guess, in the National League, 
Um, a lot of opportunities to steal bases, you know, that kind of stuff. So maybe there's upside there. Uh, the problem is, of course, if every time you move down a slot in the batting order, you lose 20 plate appearances. So if you, you know, if you're getting 600 at the leadoff spot, you're going to be down around 440 at the at the bottom of the order. Uh, finally, in this uh, column, you had an unsigned player, and uh, one of the free agents still floating around who has that big power upside. Who is that? Yeah, this is a guy who I've always liked and rostered uh had on a lot of my teams last year before a ground ball hit him in the knee and he had to get surgery and that's cj crone um that that ground ball was the last we've seen of cj crone but uh but reportedly healthy but still unsigned um and i think a lot of and again early february we still don't know if there's going to be for sure if there's going to be an nldh or not so that's going to affect um you know the list of potential suitors for for crone who's a first baseman but uh you know is, is just okay defensively but uh yeah the skills are absolutely there like uh, we put an upside of, of 40 home runs and 100 RBI on CJ Crone in the forecaster, and that really jumps off the page. Like we don't we don't do that very often for um, for somebody like Crone who's going you know really really cheap in drafts. A lot of the reason for that is he doesn't have a team, but you are kind of hedging that he is going to sign. I think he will. Um, it's just hard to say kind of which you know, what his role will be and that sort of thing. But uh, longtime HQers know that we draft skills. We don't draft roles, especially on the hitting side. And CJ Crone is an absolute example of that. Um, for guys, so we have the, the Mayberry method uh, at HQ, which kind of groups um, hitters in, in skill buckets, essentially, and rating them from zero to five in power, speed, and batting average skill. Um, we rank CJ Crone with four out of five ratings in home runs and batting average. For 2021 he's one of four guys um who who have that the other three are Eloy Jimenez Luke Voigt and Nelson Cruz they're all going in the top 100 Eloy Jimenez is going 37th overall right now and then there's CJ Crone at 350 so if you're speculating on guys and, and need that late power with batting average upside CJ Crone is the, is the guy for you especially you know while the price is down while he doesn't have a team so I'm going to be very interested to see where uh, where CJ signs 2021 i hope that uh hope it comes soon you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with ryan bloomfield speculator columnist at baseball hq and ryan you also have a regular series you call bloom boards on your twitter feed at ryan bloomfield what are bloom boards <laughs> bloom boards are my my attempt at an alliterative marketing ploy <laughs> on twitter um Basically, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of what I've always done in researching and looking at filters and, and basically creating lists. I, we call them boards on, the, on, on, on Twitter, but I'll, I'll basically make a list of filters and, and, and get a list of guys that bubble up. Um, you know, for example, guys with a certain percentage of barrel, barrel rates, so showing great power, but also having a low strikeout rate. And maybe there's you know, 10 guys that come up and, and half of them are guys you would expect. Um, going near the top of drafts the other half are guys that are you would not expect and you want to take a deeper dive on so it's basically a way to be able to to filter and slice and dice the the player pool in a little bit of a different way um, I know a lot of folks like to kind of go in the preseason prep go like player by player and analyze every single guy um, I find that to be very difficult in terms of not only just time to do that but also um, it's very hard just natural human tendency to be able to kind of focus and give everyone that that attention so 
Um, balloon boards are a way to kind of showcase different guys who meet certain skill filters, and then you can uh, you can kind of take a deeper dive um, onto that player. So it's 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 really fun to do. I get great feedback um, on Twitter. I try and put one out per weekday, and uh, usually in the afternoon, I'll throw that out there, and then there, there's a bunch of feedback, and then we discuss a lot of the guys that show up on the boards. Um, a lot of guys, and Nate Evaldi has shown up on a ton of balloon boards as somebody who has. Um, the one of the ones was he's one of four pitchers with um, double digit whiff rates on four different pitches uh, in 2020, and it was something I think it was Shane Bieber, Blake Snell, and Max Scherzer were the other three, and the fourth one's Nate Eovaldi. So it's like examples of that where okay, I, I didn't really think of Nate Eovaldi as a as a big sleeper. I'm going to now take a deeper dive and, and kind of see where I want to take him. So um, that's kind of my my long winded answer as uh, as to what a bloom board is. If you're interested in following along. Um, just search for it on Twitter and you'll see all of those come up and uh, feel free to leave feedback and let me know what you think. Hashtag Bloomboard. Uh, one of the ones that caught my eye earlier this week was uh, the filters were 10% swinging strike rates on four seam and 17% or more on a second pitch. And it didn't matter which one it was. The pitchers that you put on the board, as you mentioned, not the obvious stars. These are ADPs, fifth round and down. And some of them were way down. Uh, you had a uh, Pitchers at ADP 346, so it's barely inside the draftable area. Had a couple of those guys. Who were they? Yeah, so those guys are Josh Lindblom and, and Spencer Turnbull. And it's like, again, going back, going back to what I was saying before, like if you're going player by player through the player pool and you're that far down in the starting pitcher list and you've been awake all day and you're just like, oh, Josh Lindblom, I don't know. Um, you, you don't give them the full kind of – the full um, analysis. So these two guys showed up on a list with guys like Carlos Carrasco, Jacob deGrom. Um, there, there were, let's see, there were 17 starters who met those two filters and nine of them are going in the top 50. So that tells you, that kind of validates like th these are good traits to have to be able to miss bats with your force team and have a dominant secondary pitch. Um, so we look at guys at the bottom of that list um, like a Lynn Bloom and a, and a Turnbull and, and see what they're, what they're doing there. So um, that was an interesting one. I, I really do like Josh Lynn Bloom a lot. I like what he did um, coming over from overseas and, and pitching the way he did in Milwaukee. He's uh, of the two Lynn Bloom is the guy who, and not just because he has Bloom in his last name, um, he's, he does have the skills to back it up. So um, he's someone who I'm targeting in later in drafts and, and Turnbull, I don't know. Um, you've got, you've got the, the strikeout rate, you've got the ground ball rate, which also helps him, but a little bit of inconsistency in the, in the walk rate. So we'll see. But, uh, again, at those prices at three fifty ADP, um, there's if it doesn't work out, uh, there's really no downside. You kind of drop them and move them. That's exactly right. Uh, Spencer Turnbull with the Tigers. So we got Matt Boyd and Spencer Turnbull. You could really uh, wow the people at your draft table with a couple of those picks. And people think you lost your mind or something, and then you win your league and you look like a genius. Uh, always nice to have the speculator column when you want to look like a genius. Ryan Bloomfield, uh, remind us when the speculator appears and tell us where our listeners can keep up with you. Yeah, for sure. The speculator will drops at baseballhq.com every Wednesday morning. So. Uh, with your Wednesday cup of Joe, open up HQ and uh, and you'll see a new speculator there every week uh, through the season. And then if you want to follow along, um, I kind of tweet out little tidbits um, of each article uh, throughout the week as I'm kind of doing the research. But if you want to follow along on Twitter, I'm at Ryan 
BHQ. And uh, that's where you can find me this year. And PD, thanks again for uh, for having me on. It's always it's always a blast to talk to you, man. Ryan Bloomfield is the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 715. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate, and listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer is coming right up, and leading off, it's our minor league minute. And here with a look at St. Louis outfielder Dylan Carlson is Baseball HQ minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. 22-year-old Dylan Carlson struggled mightily in his MLB debut, hitting just 200 with three home runs and 35 strikeouts and 110 at-bats. That slow start resulted in a stint at the Cardinals' alternate training site, and when he came back in mid-September and into the postseason, he was one of the team's most productive players, hitting 304 with two home runs and 11 RBIs and 48 at-bats. At the plate, Carlson uses a simple approach with a narrow stance and hands low in a ready-to-launch position. He does have a quick swing and a slight uppercut geared towards hitting fly balls and maximizing his above-average power and bat speed. At times last year, Carlson was tentative at the plate, causing him to be late when facing plus velocity, and too often he found himself behind in counts. He did have a 9.2% barrel rate, but also only a 9.3 launch angle and a 33.5 line drive rate. That should change once he gains more experience, and his speed, above-average defense, and ability to play all three outfield slots should make him a mainstay in the Cardinals' 2021 lineup. Long-term, Dylan Carlson remains an elite prospect and could be a potential sleeper candidate if your league mates just look at his 2020 cumulative stats. We have Carlson projected to earn $8 in a standard NL-only 5x5 format, but with a quick start, he could easily double that production and is worth rostering in 2021. As you start to ramp up for the 2021 season, make sure to check out our extensive minor league coverage of Baseball HQ. Over the past several weeks, we have released our top 100 prospects and started our annual review of the top 15 prospects at each position. We have already covered the top 15 catching and shortstop prospects, and this week, Chris Blessing will be highlighting the top 15 second base prospects in baseball. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team, and he has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a look for your roster. Here with a look at Philadelphia right-hander Mike Adams is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. We're back, and we've been working on your 2021 flight plan. So as we prepare for our first takeoff this year, we urge you to sit back, relax, fasten your seatbelt, and enjoy your first frequent flyer's flight into the 2021 season. On that note, let's take off with a feel-good story about a scout from the Milwaukee Brewers. 
What? Wait, no, don't change that dial. It's true. <laughs> Our first frequent flyer of the 2021 season was, in fact, a scout for the Milwaukee Brewers. Of course, we're talking about 26-year-old Philadelphia Phillies right-handed pitcher Mike Adams. However, we should warn you, Mike Adams has never thrown one pitch in the minor leagues, so there are no meaningful statistics for him, and no metrics, which makes his story even more remarkable. Plus, Mike Adams, a childhood Phillies fan from South Jersey, reportedly convinced the Phillies to sign him in a two-minute, 16-pitch audition, according to a January 24, 2021 Philadelphia Inquirer article. Wow, talk about a small sample size. 16 pitches. Undrafted in 2016, with a fastball that topped out at 94 miles per hour in college, it appeared that Mike Adams was facing long odds of playing professional baseball. But after opening the Baseball Performance Center in nearby Pleasantville, New Jersey, and studying the deliveries of several Major League success stories, he began trying different pitching techniques to teach to others. The results? In doing so, he was able to significantly improve his own mechanics and hence increase his fastball velocity to over 98 miles per hour. Wow. Even so, he still hasn't thrown a pitch in the minors and was assigned to the low Class A Clearwater Threshers. That's why Mike Adams, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot. Perhaps the longest of all long shots, who may be worth a flyer or at least a look in the deepest of leagues in 2021. But don't completely count him out either, despite the small sample size. What he lacks in minor league experience, he's perhaps gained in major league knowledge. In other words, not many major league pitchers debut with major league scouting experience. Thus, maybe it's time for you too to scout Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Mike Adams as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Good to have Rob back on the show. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I also want to thank our HQ Spotlight guest for this News and Notes edition, Ryan Bloomfield, the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com, a great guy and a heck of an analyst. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with another Tuesday Tout Edition, a great doubleheader, Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs, and Todd Zola from, well, everywhere. That's Ariel Cohen and Todd Zola on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, Tuesday on Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.